from next season's Super League podcast featuring Duncan and I. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Uh, you pardon me? No, no, In your faces. No, 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 we don't care. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, ow. Yeah, okay, Mark, I'm out. I'm out. What happened? Ross is saying, Ross is yes, saying mean right. things. Yes, right, Ross is saying mean oh, things. Shit, that's a vocal minority I'm podcast. I'm never mind. Sorry, it's a, never. Yeah. No, I was kidding. I was kidding. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Sure, you were kidding. So I was kidding. Exactly. I'm no. sorry. I mean, we're misunderstood. Oh, oh yeah, I, you're both going to be sorry. Oh, that's right. Oh. All right. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Vocal Minority Podcast, the podcast that has also reconsidered its entry into the North American Podcasting League. On this week's episode. We're going to switch things up a bit by talking exclusively about the Toronto Blue Jays. Yes. Okay, really? <laughs> we have a special episode. Not a video podcast, but... <laughs> I know, but... That was, that, was some, that was some good cringe there. That was thank, you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I worked hard on that one. Um, <laughs> all right, no, really, we do have a special episode, though, and it is with the jazz-loving, pasta-making, mayo-hating, still don't understand, Sounds TFC like a- footy writer that you've all read for years, it's John Molinaro. That really sounded like a wrestling promo. It really did. Doesn't it just? (laughs) Um, We will be talking about his new venture, the TFC Republic. We're going to get into some CanCon, take it back for some old school TFC talk, preview a couple of matches, and of course, the rapid fire round to finish things off. And now to this week's panel. Once again, delighted to be a supporter of a lower division club. It's Duncan Fletcher. Yeah, I got things to say to all you people. Oh, yeah. You'll get your chance. Hello. Hello. Uh, he hates his club's owners anyway, so say hello to Mark Hinckley. Yeah, like like lasers. <laughs> let's just keep going. Let's just keep going and push him right off a cliff. Take the rest of it with you at this point. Uh, still hungover from celebrating Mourinho's outster. Tony won't be with us this week. Yeah. <laughs> Already regretting joining us on this week's show, please welcome the man behind the TFC Republic footy site, John Molinaro. So, so we're not, just to be clear, we're not going to talk Blue Jays, right? <laughs> not until like hour four. Yeah, no, like, like mm. two thirds of the way. It'll be fine. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and as for me, uh, power to the people. Well done, fans. Uh, I am your host, Kristen Knowles. And now to our show. July. John, the majority of today's show is all about you, so we're going to get started. Uh, first up, we want to talk to you about your big news, when that is the new chapter, your new venture, which is the TFC Republic. And you've been on the sports scene in Toronto for a really long time. You're one of the original Toronto, uh, Toronto FC beat reporters. Uh, after Sportsnet turfed a bunch of people in their non-wisdom. Uh, you did eventually end up at the Camp Yell, and now you've decided to go out on your own and start TFC Republic. So very first question, of course, is why? Um, well, a few things. I mean, first of all, 
um, you know, with regards to the CPL, um, it was, you know, it, it hardly needs me telling everyone that the last year was, has been, you know, tough on everyone just with what's going on in the world. And so, you know, being editor in chief and running the, the editorial side of the CPL website, it's a stressful job in the best of times. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way because it is, because I do think it's an important job. It's the website of, you know, Canada's top tier division. So it was a responsibility that I took uh, very seriously. Um, but again, it's stressful under the best of times. And in the last year, it was especially stressful. And so I just felt, um, you know, towards Christmas time that I, I was really feeling kind of worn down and uh, burned out, if I'm perfectly honest, and started to think about, you know, possibly moving on and what would I do? And, you know, during the winter months, it just kind of, I just couldn't get out of this rut. It was just like, oh man, I'm just feeling like really sort of, as I said, burned out. And in March, I just said, you know, I kind of basically come to the decision that I wanted to move on just for my own um, sort of peace of mind and mental health and mm -hmm. sort of, uh, move on from the CPL. Um, I don't want to sort of portray it as the fact like I was sort of suffering from depression or dealing with mental health issues. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I did feel like, as I said, burnt out and just, I wanted to move on and just kind of do a mental reset. And so, um, you know, I had this idea of launching my own sort of pay subscription website in the back of my mind. And, you know, if I, if I guess the other reason why I left is, I mean, uh, is I just honestly, if I'm very simply, I kind of miss being a TFCB reporter. It was something that, um, you know, I did for God, what, 12, 13 seasons. Um, it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, felt I was, you know, good at, I got some good response from readers who enjoyed, uh, reading my articles, whether it was at uh, CBC sports. And then when I left for, for Sportsnet, and I just really wanted to get back to that. And so I've kind of thought, you know, doing this paid subscription model would be, uh, you know, my entryway into getting back into that. So um, those were kind of the main two reasons. I mean, I guess also, if, and if I'm being perfectly honest as well, um, I do think it was probably time to move on from the CPL in that there was, you know, it was about as much as I was going to get out of the experience. There wasn't much more that I thought I could kind of squeeze out of it. And so... Again, combining that with the other two things, I uh, just kind of felt it was uh, time to move on. No malice on my part um, towards them or anything like that. It was a, it was a, uh, a happy divorce, and uh, you know they were they understood uh, my uh, my decision and they were very gracious about it. So uh, it was it was a very amicable split on, on both our parts. Okay, so you sort of felt like maybe like you said, you'd done what you could, something was sort of missing from what you were getting out of it. And, you know, obviously you missed the, uh, the lore of the madness that is MLS and Toronto FC. And I, which is great, you know, so welcome back to the TFC beat. We uh, certainly need all the, all the coverage possible. Mm -hmm. um, I do have one other question before I turn over to one of the other guys here. Mm -hmm. uh, why Republic? What led you to that name? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I was kind of just going it through my mind and it was just like, you know, Raptors Gazette, Raptors Report, Raptors Tribune, Raptor, sorry, you know, TFC kind of Basketball thing. Basketball is next on the list, apparently. That's, yeah, that's apparently. Johnson's yeah, career okay. move. Yeah. 
This um, is our exclusive. Vocal minority Hero. exclusive. He's that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basketball um, correspondent. Doug Smith, look at it. Yeah. I was just kind of going through these kind of names and then quite uh, by mistake, I just kind of stumbled upon this website, Raptors Republic. And I thought, oh, that's kind of got a nice ring to it. I wonder if, if you know, that might be uh, worth doing. And um, uh, yeah, so that was literally how it came about. It was just like, oh, Raptors Republic sounds cool. Maybe I'll try that with TFC. So uh, thank you, Raptors Republic, for giving me the inspiration. <laughs> okay, so now... Obviously, this is your own thing currently. Do you see it staying as just uh, like the solo endeavor, or you know, if it picks up and there's lots of subscriptions, do you think it is something that we'd be getting other people in, whether it's on a much more staff basis or just occasional freelance things? Where do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope so, Duncan. I mean, I have to say, the early response has um, really blown my mind. Um, so the site has been up. I mean, we're recording this wet on a Wednesday. So uh, the site has been up for 10 days. And, um, you know, after a week, it already sort of exceeded my, I, I sort of certain goal for, for subscribers after one week. And mm -hmm. it exceeded that by quite a bit. So, um, so I was really sort of humbled and, you know, pleased by that, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, potentially if it gets to the point where, you know, it can really grow and, you know, I can afford to bring on other freelancers, then yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear, you know, bring on other writers because right now it's just my voice and, you know, as great as that might be, uh, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's people, I'm sure people would love to hear from get different perspectives. Right. I mean, uh, that is kind of one, my one fear is that at some point people, I just fear, you know, they're going to get tired of just hearing, um, you know, one sort of point of view and one perspective. So I am cognizant of the fact that, you know, I, I, that I do think the site, the site, you know, eventually could, uh, could really profit from other voices. So that's certainly something that's on my radar. So now that you're, you, you find yourself, you know, you're working for yourself, you're your own boss and there's no real limitations, no real restrictions on what you choose to write. What, what do you see yourself doing differently from say your time at Sportsnet or Campiel? I think just kind of more kind of long form sort of features that are a little bit more in depth, um, you know, stuff that I can sort of chase down a little bit. Like, you know, a perfect example is, um, you know, a story I published this week with uh, Octavio Zambrano. Yeah, the former uh, Canadian uh -huh. national team coach. That was an interesting read for sure. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know that I would have been able to do that. I, I mean, I probably could have done that at Sportsnet, but it would have taken me like a, a lot of time to chase him down and to kind of like, you know, convince him to speak to me just because, you know, I'm, I, I had a lot of different responsibilities at Sportsnet, right? It wasn't just kind of what you saw online. It was, um, you know, managing the soccer section. Um, I think now that I'm just kind of dedicated to, the, to this site and the, my own time is my own time and I can do with it whether I please, um, it, I think it's going to allow me to sort of like chase down these guys a little bit quicker and kind of convince them to, to speak to me. And, and so I think you'll see kind of more stories like that. I think you'll get more kind of long form stories, um, more articles about, you know, the history of the club, because, you know, as much as you and I and I know kind of the history of the club, I'm not exactly sure, you know, you know, every fan knows the club. I, you know, I, I suspect there are a whole slew of, 
new supporters who have, you know, recently joined the club in the last two years and they're not necessarily, um, you know, knowledgeable about that entire back history. So I want to certainly delve in, into that. And I just think some, some really sort of just interest is, interesting MLS, you know, TFC breakdown story. So for instance, you know, with TFC, they, they pulled off that major trade yesterday for, um, you know, GAM money. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. I wonder where, yeah. I wonder where GAM's going to play. They, they, yeah. they need a central defender. So, well, uh, well you joke, but I mean, I think, I think GAM and TAM and all of that is still very much a mystery to uh, some people, some fans and it, rightly so. I mean, I, I find myself and I've covered the team since day one. Absolutely. I constantly have to go over like the re- league rules and ask for clarifications so, you know, instead of just doing a, a basic story about, well, this is what happened, you, you know, in the trade, um, it, w- it was more of an explainer about, well, this is what GAM is, and this is what this trade allows TFC to do going forward. And we kind of played out a different scenarios as to what they could do with the money. Um, you know, the, the league has introduced a new um, a rule about under 22 players, I think it is. Essentially, it's a new pot of money that they can spend on, uh, on, on players in that way. And so I spoke to uh, Ali Curtis last week to get his whole take on that, just about not just what it means for Toronto, but what it means for, for MLS as well. And so I'll have a, a story about that coming up um, in the next week or two. So to get back to your question, Mark, I think it's just going to be different kind of long-form feature-ish kind of stuff that you know maybe you might not necessarily read um, you know, at other outlets. That's fair. That's, and, and I mean, if that's, that's how you're going to really leave a mark in, in, in the, in the pantheon of, of media uh, um, and your access will definitely, uh, will definitely shed some light on places that not that they're, not that they're in the dark, but they're kind of, you know, they're under some shade, a little bit of shade. So look forward to that. (laughs) All right, that's great. So, yes, so that is uh, tfcrepublic.ca. The link for that will be in the uh, show notes, and we'll talk about it again a little bit later on. I sang it while my sorrows You told me all your joys Whatever happened to that old song to all those little girls and boys. Time to turn to some CanCon. Because one of the other things that, John, you've indicated that, you well, you had not indicated, you have been writing about and you have a, an interest in and a passion about is Canadian soccer as well. And obviously you've just come from the CanPL. And that is where we're going to start. So, you know, the brand new league, still newish, going into its third year, we hope. Um, and, you know, you were in charge of the, you know, the digital content for a good chunk of that time. Um, but, you know, this is a league that we've all waited a long time for and uh, have, a lot of, have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. <laughs> Yeah, the first question there is when the league was first being formed, I guess before you yourself got involved with it, were you skeptical about its chances and 
you know, now do you think it actually has like the legs and has a good chance to keep going and establish itself long term? I was skeptical, if I'm perfectly honest, Duncan. Um, you know, I'm someone who has followed Canadian soccer. I mean, having grown up in Canada since I was a kid, and so I've seen teams in various leagues, whether it's uh -huh. American Soccer League, USL, A League, come and go. Um, saw the Canadian Soccer League kind of come and go. I can remember having season tickets to Brian Timmis Field in Hamilton to watch the Hamilton Steelers with my dad. Um, and so... Yeah, Mark's like, losing his crap right now. Mark is now your biggest fan. <laughs> okay. you, you're two, you two are besties now. You have oh, no you idea. Go. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, Mark, I have, where's your kit? Where's I have, your kit? I have a, I have a game-worn uh, Lucio Inero kit. Oh, wow. That he okay. gave me off of his back when he was with, with uh, Roma Wolves. And then we went down to St. Catharines and he gave me a Steelers shirt that are in a frame out in my living room. And that is my prized possession. Oh, wow. Cool. So, yes. Yeah. Those were, <laughs> I mean, those were, those were great times at Brian Timmis Field. I, I mean, I those were, uh, you know, I absolutely love that. Um, but yeah, to get back to Duncan's question, uh, I was certainly skeptical because I just thought, you know, it hasn't worked and we haven't had a, our own sort of top tier domestic division uh, since, you know, what was it, 91, 92 when the CSL folded? Um, so definitely skeptical at first. But then as I saw kind of more and more who, of the people involved, and especially on the sponsorship side, I mean, Volkswagen was, I think, one of their sort of initial title sponsors. And when you can kind of lure in a, a company like that, um, mm -hmm. that's pretty significant. Um, when they can, you know, have a broadcast partner in, in media pro who, you know, I don't even, if, I'm not sure if people appreciate how big of a company media pro is. I mean, this is a huge media empire in Spain. It has, you know, massive money behind them. So the fact that they were able to bring them aboard certainly made it more encouraging. Um, you know, will it last for the future? I mean, I hope so. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, certainly my hope is a little dented by what's kind of going on in the world. And, you know, right now with, you know, the pandemic and, you know, whether they can get a second, uh, you know, play this. I mean, I do suspect they will play this season, but how is that going to look like? Will there be fans in the stands? Will it be another bubble tournament? Uh, at the end of the day, it still is a gate revenue driven league. And to go potentially two seasons without having that significant portion of revenue stream coming mm -hmm. in is worrying. Um, but everything that I've heard from, from my time there is that, you know, the sort of, you know, league owners and board of directors, everyone involved uh, is involved and committed for the long term. So, you know, that gives me hope during very trying times. Cool. One just very brief follow-up here. You mentioned pandemic. How hard was it to actually run a website when nothing was happening? And <laughs> having to be coming up with content constantly. Oh God. Yeah, that's that was probably the toughest challenge. I mean, so, you know, because the pandemic hit what, March? And mm -hmm. Island Games wasn't until August. And so it wasn't announced until I think like late July, early August. I, I mean, God, the last year is just, you know, it's fogged my memory. So forgive me if I'm getting some of these time frames wrong. Uh, we but, don't know what day it is, John. Yeah. So yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah, so you know. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So, you know, during the off season, so I, I, I'll back up after, you know, the, two, the 219, uh, the 2019, uh, you know, championship game in Calgary, 
then you had like the awards, then you had year end kind of stuff. Then January was, I think that, or was the draft before that? No, the draft was before then. Uh, but then January you had guys like Tristan Borges being sold to, to the team in Belgium. So there was a fair bit of, you know, content that we could produce. Right. Um, and then February and March were kind of like dog months because you figured, well, by then we would hope that we'd be in preseason mode. We had Ottawa to come aboard. I should have mentioned. So, but still come March, it was like, Oh man, like it'd be kind of cool to get preseason going. Um, you know, the pandemic hits and then for whatever it was, you know, most of March, April, May, June, um, and portion of July, it was like, Oh my God, you know, what are we doing? Like, what, what can we possibly do? Like, you know, what stories do we churn out? Because, you know, Ottawa helped a little bit in that they were still piecing their real roster together. So there were, you know, there was, you know, some news stories there and teams were making mother moves, but generally speaking, it was very tough to come up with like good sort of original ideas for content and, you know, credit to uh, mm -hmm. credit to Charlie O'Connor Clark and Marty Thompson, my staff of, uh, of full-time writers at campbell.ca. They were, you know, they never complained, you know, they never bitched or moaned like once, like they really kind of came through in the pinch. And, and I think we, you know, for the most part, we, we, we produced some pretty interesting content uh, during some very trying times, but yeah, it was certainly, that was probably one of the most challenging, you know, parts of, of the job during my time at Camp Bales.ca was just sort of coming up with content ideas and executing those ideas during the pandemic. Well, sort of speaking of like stories or, or things that make the, the Camp PL perhaps difficult in, in one way, uh, like you follow football for a long time since you were a kid, right? Like we're, we're all sort of lifers when it comes to the footy game. Um, but you followed a number of different leagues. And one of the things we wanted to just ask you about, not necessarily maybe from a, from a league response, because we understand that, you know, this is a personal opinion or, you know, that's private information. Um, but players unions, you know, they're nothing new to you. And sure. the players union for us is something that is near and dear to our hearts. We, you know, we're, we're strong believers um, in the players right to represent themselves. And, and we think personally, we think it's a good thing. So we were just curious, you know, what your thoughts on the whole players union situation was and whether you are hopeful that it goes forward or you think it's a good idea, regardless of, you know, what's happening in the world. Uh, I'm right there with you. Um, I, I, I think it's an excellent idea and I think it's absolutely needed um, for the players in the CPL. Um, I do think it will go forward, but it's going to be a long slog um, be, just because of, again, what's kind of going on in the world. I think too, um, obviously the, the CPL doesn't have a, a rather large appetite for it to see the players unionize. That um, is a very <laughs> kind way of putting it. Yes. And, and, and so with them not making it easy, it, it, I mean, just by the logistics of it, it is a long process that, you know, the players union has to kind of go through to organize. So this is going to take time. Um, I suspect it's not going to be something that's finalized even, you know, by the end of this year, you know, maybe next year at best, but yeah, I mean, for, from everything I've heard from talking to the players, uh, you know, behind the scenes off the record, they obviously want to push this. And they're not giving up the fight. And, you know, my own personal opinion is good on them. They should absolutely go for it. I do think they need representation. Um, 
you know, in terms of what the league stance is, I mean, I think we all know what they, <laughs> what they want. I mean, uh, I know that, um, you know, David Klanikin has said it's going to happen at some point, but again, uh, they're not in any rush to, to make that happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, just from speaking to the players, I think it's, you know, I think it's, they clearly feel that they need representation. It's important. And, you know, to give you a perfect example, um, and I wrote about this, I wrote a story about this on, on TFC Republic. Um, you know, last year during the Island Games, the players were really, you know, two, a few players that I spoke to, they were really pissed off, um, you know, both at the league and one soccer because they didn't think they were doing enough to elevate their voices during the entire, um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. You know, this was, was still when, uh, was it George Floyd had died or the guy in Wisconsin? I can't remember. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Um, yeah, well, George Floyd's murder was what really yeah, set it off. But, um, yeah, but then there was like another one in Wisconsin. You'll forgive me, I can't uh-huh. remember the gentleman's name. Yeah. Uh, that really kind of reinvigorated sort of like the movement. Um, but from like the players that I talked to, like during the Island Games, they were really, you know, upset that the league wasn't doing enough and one soccer wasn't doing enough to sort of elevate sort of the discussion and like, you know, their voices. So, um, you know, they forced, you know, they forced the meeting with like the league and David Klanikin, you know, at, in PEI and saying, look, you know, you guys aren't doing enough. This is what we want to do. Um, you know, they were the ones that sort of entire protest prior to the, I think it was the Ottawa Calvary game where every player and every coach and every staff member of the league kind of came out together and then, they stopped the game at 849 and did like another moment of silence. That was absolutely driven by the players. 100%. Um, you know, they kind of came together and sort of did that and they forced the sort of, you know, CPL's hand into doing that. And I think that kind of shows you the power of what unionization unionization can do. Um, it would have been very difficult for Kyle Becker or Kwame Awua or, whoever, one individual player to kind of come out, even a group of players to kind of come out to the league and saying, look, you guys aren't doing enough. And, you know, this, these are the changes we want to do. But when you have, you know, team captains and the bulk of the overwhelming majority of players coming together in a meeting and saying, we're angry. This is what we want to do. This is what, you know, you should be doing, you know, essentially forcing, you know, CPL and one soccer to listen to them and force their hand then that's a pretty like powerful like movement and powerful um, just shows you the power of what a union can do. So to get back to the original question, yeah, I do think they haven't, I don't think, you know, the players have given up the appetite for that. Uh, and I do think it is something that's, uh, you know, needed with, with regards to the players, players going in the CPL. Thanks. We really appreciate the, the candor and uh, a little bit more knowledge on the, the Island games. Yeah. Cause yeah, that's one of the most, lasting uh, and powerful images from those games. And um, I do remember watching and being upset at different games when the players were trying to do something for Black Lives Matters when the one soccer was talking over it. They weren't even showing it. And so to hear, to hear the, 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 you know, it's good to see. Yeah, it does. Like you said, it shows what the players coming together can do. So um, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah. The other thing, I mean, just kind of getting back to the union thing. I mean, if you were to, (laughs) if you were to type, you know, whatever it is, CPL players union into the search engine on the CPL website, 
um, you're not going to get any results. No, no, you're not. So um, that's not mm -hmm. by coincidence. So take that for what you will as well as to, as I said, to, as a measure of, of what the league's appetite is for, for seeing the players unionized. Fair. So <clears throat> now that you're no longer uh, paid to be impartial, who's your side in the KNPL? Um, and why is it Forge? Hmm. <laughs> you know what? There's there's actually two sides. Uh, one is Forge, just because I'm a Burlington boy. So right. again, God, the two of you are going to be besties by the end of this for sure. Uh, like dinners, you know, nights like, out. Like I said, I mean, we were my dad and I were season ticket holders to the Hamilton Steelers games, and you know. Summer games at Brian Timmis Field were awesome, especially when they were playing like the Toronto Blizzard or North York Rockets. Those were great games. Mm -hmm. uh, so Forge, I would say, uh, but also HFX. Um, so what happened was when I was still at Sportsnet, uh, this was like in the last month that I was there, they sent me out to Halifax to cover their home opener um, in May of uh, 2019 and against, of all teams, Forge. And I had been to Halifax before, uh, love the city. I just think it's a fantastic uh, place. Just really cool vibe to the city. Very laid back, complete antithesis to Toronto. Um, so absolutely loved it. And, you know, what I saw there was just incredible. I mean, I think I really have to sort of tip my hat to, you know, Derek Martin, the president of the, of the Wanderers, because what they've created there is something really sort of special. I think it's the best sort of fan atmosphere in the CPL. And I would dare say, you know, one of the best kind of um, fan experiences in Canadian soccer uh, is just phenomenal what they've done at Wanderers Ground. Uh, absolutely sensational. And so I wrote a long story about, you know, HFX coming in the league and what, you know, the game day experience was like. And, you know, I just kind of, I mean, I already loved Halifax to begin with, but that kind of just put it over the top and just kind of fell in love with HFX. So that's why for me, it was great to see you know, Forge and HFX in the, in the Island Games final. So uh, nothing but Forge and HFX finals going forward as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So, so we're, so we're going to rent a van and we're just going to – anyway. Um, <laughs> that is delightful. Although this Pacific supporter was hoping you'd maybe go west, but that's okay. I'll let it, I'll let it go. I'll let it go for now. Yeah, those purple jerseys, I can't get over them, man. Oh, Sean Molinaro, <laughs> those purple jerseys are beautiful. You be quiet. One very quick follow-up question here. Given sure. what you just said about Halifax, favorite Canadian city, Halifax or Montreal? <gasps> oh. oh, wow. That oh. is a big <laughs> Oh, Duncan going <laughs> in hard. hard. Journalism. <laughs> yes. that's, that's a good question. That's, that's very tough. Uh, because I love both cities. I mean, kind of fell in love with Montreal because I've covered so many TFC road games there. And mm -hmm. absolutely great city. I mean, for all its inefficiencies and idiosyncrasies and just, you know, not functioning as, as a proper city should. Not proper city. I mean, as a city should. Um, there is an unbelievable charm to it. Uh, it's a very European, almost like experience, I think. And maybe it's just because of, you know, the, the language thing, but um, fantastic city during the summer, not so much during the winter where it's cold as hell, but during the summer, absolutely loved it. I mean, and, and Scott Saputo, I think is a really great 
sort of venue to watch a game. Um, you know, during a vacation about 20 years ago, I went to London and I saw like about 10 games in two weeks. And one of the places I was lucky enough to go was Craven Cottage to watch Fulham. Um, oh, what nice. a great venue. And I'm not saying Stad Saputo is Crave Cottage. I hope does, not. But it does kind of remind me in the way it's intimacy and the way it's built. It does sort of remind me of Craven Cottage. Um, but boy, yeah, Halifax and, and Montreal, man, that's a very tough one. Um, Ooh, answer the question, John. Yeah, answer the question, John. Into the fire. I'll say Halifax because it's on the ocean. Hey. And there's certainly, you know, the fresh sort of seafood and, and, and fish is something to behold there. Although, funny, my favorite ha- restaurant in Halifax is a, is a place called, um, oh God, what's it called now? I can't even remember. But something Putin? But it's a Southern barbecue joint. Oh, naturally. <laughs> Which, why, why wouldn't it be? Why yeah. wouldn't it be? Of course. Uh, it'd be like going to, you know, Idaho and eating carrots rather than potatoes. So it was... Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, have a great affinity for both cities. I think they're both fantastic. But, but you chose Halifax, so take that, Snowflake fans. Ha-ha. I chose Halifax, absolutely. Hands down. <laughs> Despite the Donaire, which I can't stand. But, oh. but. Oh, they might not let you in now. Oof. Heads up. Well, they, they wow. That sort of sweet white. Uh, someone sent that, this clip to Stephen Hart. I don't know. Like This is, this is concerning. Oh. You know, if they just if they did just did traditional donaire, then I'm t- absolutely on board. But they they slather this like sickly white, sickening white sauce on it. Might that's, as well be that's, mayonnaise. That's the key um, yeah, to the whole thing. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> so this is like this is like a John Molinar hallmark now. If it's a white sauce, yes. it is evil. Mm. So <laughs> it's important important knowledge. John Molinaro kryptonite, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. Well, continuing on with some CanCon, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the national teams, uh, the national programs, and especially because, like, right now, you know, we're we're sort of entering a really exciting period for both of Canadian Canada's national teams. There's a lot of talent on both the men's and women's side, and which is giving you know Canadian soccer fans a certain amount of hope, which is weird because we're not used to feeling hope, especially around the men's side. The women's team, you know. A little more hope, but still. And uh, there's, you know, a couple things that are coming up uh, or in the works that give uh, fans even more to look forward to. Yes, there are. <laughs> First up, um, the men's team, it's arguably the most talented group of players in decades, possibly ever. Um, what do you feel like the, the men's program needs to do still, but leading up to the 2026 World Cup? And this summer's Gold Cup, is that like an important litmus test? Is that really going to tell us anything? Or? I don't think so, uh, Duncan, only because, you know, John Herdman has said that, you know, the priority this year is the World Cup qualifiers, right? So uh, I suspect we're not going to see a full strength team um, at the Gold Cup. That doesn't mean we're going to see a B team, but, you know, my I, just from, from what he's saying and where his priorities lay, I envision it's going to be a somewhat experimental side. So I don't know that you can read too much into the results. Um or by the way they play from the Gold Cup. Um, I'm a little leery about sort of heralding this team just yet because we've been down this road before. Uh, I can remember mm-hmm. 
in the mid 2000s when there was Atiba and Julian and you know a bunch of people and you know you you'd heart you, you I remember hearing about you know the actual phrase well this is the bed me, best midfield in CONCACAF this is you know the golden generation of talent and you know what happened <laughs> so um, I'm I, I'm side really, flag yeah I'm really <laughs> hesitant to talk about yes you know this is the most talented generation or you know this team is earmarked sure. for World Cups or success just because of what's gone in the past. That said, uh, I am encouraged by, you know, obviously the level of talent. I mean, Alfonso Davies is a pretty substantial, you know, uh, player who's playing at a very high level consistently. Jonathan David is a very good player playing for a pretty prominent club in France, probably move on this summer. Uh, and there are others playing in Europe and there are players who are competing out of a high level at MLS. So I don't think the Canadian national men's team has had this kind of uh, not only uh, quality, but depth, perfectly honest, in such a long time. And I can, re- I can remember, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that long ago where it wasn't terribly, um, you know, um, out of the ordinary to see when like a roster list came out for an upcoming friendly, um, you know, they, they print all the players name and then they would have like the club beside their name and it was unattached, unattached, unattached. And, you know, it became a running mm-hmm. joke, you know, Canadian men's, uh, you know, they're, you know, they have so many players with unattached FC. Uh, those days are long gone. So I think it is absolutely trending in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, I'm not sort of ready to hop on the bandwagon just yet because, you know, frankly, who have they beaten? Um, you know, aside from the one game mm-hmm. against the United States uh, in the Nations League, which was Absolutely a brilliant result, brilliant performance, and they were full value for that win. They haven't beaten a top-tier competition or anyone above them in the rankings since John Herdman taken over. If you look at their track record, they've beaten teams like the Cayman Islands and Dominica and Cuba. They haven't beaten a Costa Rica or a Mexico, aside, again, aside from the one game against the United States. So it's been predominantly minnows that they've beaten up. Uh, you have to win those games and you can only play what's in front of you. I get that. But real letmus test of this team isn't going to come until, uh, you know, the final round of CONCACAF qualifying, assuming they get there, because then not only are they going to have to play Honduras, well, they have to play Mexico, well, they have to play uh, Costa Rica, but they're also going to have to travel and do it down in South America or Central America. It's not going to be mm-hmm. at BMO Field. It's not going to be at some neutral venue in, in Bradenton, Florida. This will be, assuming the pandemic kind of dies down and we're somewhat back to normal, you know, with fans throwing, uh, you know, piss bags at Canadian players and, <laughs> and kind of hawking horns outside their, their hotel room all night. These are very intimidating sort of places to go. And they really haven't had the opportunity to go down to those places and show what they can do. So for me, that's the litmus test. We can kind of go on about, yeah, they've beaten Cayman's Islands and, and Dominica and they've racked up whatever it is, a ridiculous amount of goals. And again, you can only play what's in front of you. But, you know, I, I'm, I can't sort of like get too high on the team until they show me that, one, they can beat, you know, the top tier teams in CONCACAF. Two, show that they can do it down in Central America or in Mexico. And three, do it on a consistent basis. We're just not there yet. So, you know, I'm just kind of reserving judgment as to, you know, whether this is the golden generation or, you know, the best generation of Canadian talent. 
Okay. Harsh but fair. Indeed. All right. Um, shifting gears, but still within the national teams, um, the women's side. So the Olympics, obviously, are apparently still happening this summer. <laughs> and, um, you know, Bev Priestman, newly in charge of the squad, has done fairly well in the few months that she's been in charge. And, you know, they've already, you know, they've been stating this goal for a while that going into these Olympics, they want to change the color of the medal, having won bronze the last two Olympics, which, you know, no other country has done, right? But still, they'd like to see a different color. So now today the groups were announced. So they're facing Japan, Great Britain, and Chile in Group E. And looking at those countries that they're facing, like this is um, a really good test of both uh, Bev Priestman's coaching abilities and the players she chooses to take. So what do you think is their, is their biggest challenge? Which, which match is their biggest challenge and what do they need to do to advance? Well, I think those the, the opening game against Japan is 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 a very big challenge, and I think that last one against Great Britain. Uh, I mean, we say Great Britain; it's essentially the English national team. Um, I think those are two, are two of the biggest tests because Japan. Um, I know they've fallen off a little bit since um, you know winning uh, you know silver the silver medal at uh, where it was the twenty twelve Olympics, and this isn't the Japan of twenty eleven when they won the World Cup or even when they you know, lost in the final of the 2015 World Cup. But it's still a wonderfully gifted technical side who is very good in possession, really can kind of a dynamic attack and make sort of teams chase the game and chase the ball. And I think that's really going to be a challenge for Canada because, um, you know, I, they're gonna, I think they're going to really have to use their athleticism and kind of physical advantage to um, sort of dominate the Japanese. I don't think they're on the same sort of technical level as the Japanese. So it's going to be an interesting technical battle um, to say nothing of the fact that, you know, Japan sort of leads the all-time series. And the last time they played, um, you know, they swatted them, I think, three or four nothing. I was going to so, say, yeah, it wasn't pretty. Yeah, it wasn't pretty at all. So that was, you know, that's going to be a tough test. Great Britain is going to be a tough test too. I mean, when you look at England and Canada, they've played 14 times. They've each won seven. Uh, the majority of, you know, the English national team play in the, um, in the, uh, in the top di division there in England. It's a very good team fallen on hard time, a little bit of hard times recently. I, I don't, I think they've only won like twice in the last two years. And one of those was against Northern Ireland, which, you know, with all due respect, that's a, a pretty winnable game. Um, but similar to Canada in playing style. Um, so I think, again, that's going to be a, an interesting tactical battle. If they can sort of get positive results out of those two games, then I think obviously that will bode well for them, uh, you know, advancing from that, uh, the tournament. I mean, my biggest, if I'm a Canadian supporter, my biggest fear is uh, where are the goals coming from? Uh, we saw at She Believes Cup that, you know, the attack really sputtered when Christine Sinclair wasn't there. I think they only scored the one goal and it was against Argentina, right? Right at the death of that game. Um, the latest two friendlies obviously scored whatever it was five goals. And, you know, you saw a little bit more from Janine Becky and Evelyn Vienne seems to be. Well, I was going to uh, say Evelyn Vienne's is I yeah. think the sort of the obvious answer at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think she's, you know, we have to remember that Olympic rosters are only 18 players. They're not 23 players like for world cup. So, so that really, hard that really narrows down your selection. And so, 
you know, does she, does Evian, does uh, Vienne, who's only has, uh, I think about three or four caps, does she move up the depth chart ahead of someone like Jordan Heidema, who has more experience, but she's not playing regularly for PSG. And when you look at it, I think all of her goals are against minnows. Like she's, she hasn't scored against a top tier opponent. Um, for me, I bring Evelyn Vienne. Um, but that's an interesting selection dilemma for, for uh, Bev Priestman. You know, does she bring someone like Diana Matheson who has been a long and loyal servant to the Canadian national team, part of those two Olympic bronze medal sides, but she hasn't played for the, for the women's team in a year. She's, she hasn't really played all that much club or national team football in the last two years due to injuries. And, you know, she's still dealing with she's an injury. still injured. Yeah. So, I mean, as unthinkable as it might be for some people, I think you have to leave her at home. I mean, I, I don't see, especially on an 18 person roster, there can't be anybody who, you know, Oh, well, if we get like half an hour out of them, that's fine. You got to be able to play in 90 minutes every game just because of, you know, the roster numbers. That's going to be some, I think some really big questions that Bev Priestman is going to have to ask. She has to get this roster, right? She has to, I mean, she has to really hope that, you know, the players who are playing in Europe and the NWSL over the next two months can remain in good form. Like Janine Becky, who's playing quite well at Man City lately um, and score some goals, because I think that's, my, if I'm a Canadian supporter, that's my biggest worry is where are the goals are going to come from? Uh, you cannot rely simply on Christine Sinclair. There no, has not at more, all. There has to be more balanced. I mean, and look, and this is something that it hardly needs me to saying it, because even though I've been saying it for years, I think we all understand that, you know, Canada has to start developing other goal scores. Other people have to start carrying, you know, the goal scoring burden. So for me, I think how far Canada goes will very much rely upon, you know, whether they can put the ball in the back of the net. I think defensively they're, they're solid. When you look at players, the caliber of Kadisha, Zdorsky and Vanessa Gill, I think is really shot up. Stunning. And Ashley Lawrence who can play multiple positions, you know, like she's a real key player right. talk about going and playing as much as possible right. you can have and her Quinn, in the defense and in the midfield right and Quinn is another one who is I think has been oh, really kind of they're amazing yeah so I think that sort of bodes well but I do think in these type of tournaments you know defense will only get you so far and you know eventually they're going to have to play a team like you know the Netherlands or the United States or Sweden along the way in the knockout round teams with you know high power offense and so you know, you cannot simply rely on, you know, your, your defense. You have to, you have to have a, an attack to go with it. And so again, restate and keep repeating myself, but that's for me would, would be the biggest worry is whether they can kind of get that attacking gear. Well, it was sort of just as you were talking, like in something, you know, cause we've talked about the squad and, and who would go. And again, 18 is really hard, but again, talking about players who have multiple, who have, you know, layers of ability, um, sort of shrinking who you take for the midfield, take a small midfield and load up more at the front because you have someone like Jesse Fleming who can score mm. beautiful goals, but who has been, you know, really, really important to that midfield play uh, when you've got Quinn and their ability to, to set players up and to um, break up plays going the other direction. When you have Ashley Lawrence, um, you know, potentially Sophie Schmidt, um, you know, or potentially Desiree Scott, like there's, there's some choice there, but leave it at that. 
and, you know, load up on your front players instead and just ensure that, you know, they're playing some two way. And then you have a little more opportunity to get that ball and to be creative near the net. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it's it's a really interesting dynamic with like the 18 person roster. I mean, again, it's not like a World Cup roster where you have 23 players and you can not that World Cup coaches waste, you know, World Cup roster spots. They don't. But there is a little bit more leeway and it is a little bit more forgiving. I would I would I would sort of offer humbly with an 18 person roster. Uh, boy, <laughs> you know, you really, you really can't afford to get anything wrong. You can't have any passengers out there. You really need everyone at their best because inevitably they're going to be called upon at some point. It's just, you know, a fact. from CanCon now and we're going to talk about Super League because <laughs> we have to now before we get into this there's 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 two things that are going to happen one Duncan is going to lord many things over us because uh as part of today's panel with the exception of Duncan everybody supports a club that threw in with the Super League John obviously you're a Juventus supporter Mark, Manchester United, myself, Spurs. Um, so before we go into any discussion, we're just going to pause for Duncan. Duncan, the floor is yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, it made for, well, obviously Sunday and Monday were depressing, but Tuesday was a lot of fun. Uh, just watching a lot of people kind of tie themselves in knots of trying to figure out, well, I, I don't like this, but I can't say bad things about my team and all that sort of thing. It's, it's very nice not to uh, not to have that. Um, I, did, I definitely feel like today I'm a bit more just depressed about the whole thing because, you know, you Aww. look at the, the, the Champions League, you know, they've actually come out and all right, there's all these new things that are just taking things further and further along what they've been doing for the last 25, 30 years of just making it you know, a little bit closer and closer and closer to a closed shop. So, you know, everything that, you know, you maybe don't like or I don't like about football and just the concentration of wealth and all that sort of thing that's been going on for God knows how long and that, you know, people seem to be fine with. Uh, you know, it's still going, isn't it? And some kind of super league, eventually they'll figure out, like, getting the timing of it and the messaging of it right and you know, it'll happen. You know, it's maybe just a case of hmm, get a report, M Rupert Murdoch company involved. Nobody liked the Premier League, but oh, Sky was involved, and so Rupert Murdoch was there, and so you know, yeah, it kind of eventually got through. And now everybody loves the Premier League. Eventually, this Super League will happen, and everyone will love it. So, yes, Tuesday was full of fun and Schadenfreude, but uh, Wednesday, yeah, it's all just going to happen, isn't it? And all of you know everyone's just going to go along with it and you know maybe they'll 
pretend to grumble about, oh, I really don't like the owners or this or that, but oh, I can't give up my club. Sure, you can. You can give up on your club if you want to, but you yeah, won't. Yeah, again. Yeah. I don't know. We got angry um, Duncan instead of gleeful Duncan. Yeah, I thought we were getting gleeful Duncan. Duncan. This is not yeah, how I planned this. Of, like, angry, depressed. Uh, of, I don't know. Well, this is inevitable, isn't it? I, and yeah, there's nothing we can do and it's all going to happen and what have you. But uh, yeah, Tuesday was a lot of fun. So yes, that was one good day at least. Uh, Duncan is a part uh, owner of Darlington, by the way, uh, and longtime Darlington supporter since he chose not to go on about that, which surprised me. <laughs> I would heartily recommend everyone abandon the big club uh, that you may have supported for a long time, but has you know, clearly shown that it does not have your interests at heart in any sense at all. Abandon them. Find a smaller club to enjoy. It makes things a lot more fun. I promise. You can. I definitely see that. Mm-hmm. But so, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on. <laughs> Mark? So, John. Yes. In light of all of this Super League nonsense, circus, whatever word you choose, how does this outcome, how does this news affect your support for, for Juventus? Has it, has it damaged in any way, shape, or form mm-hmm your relationship to them? Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, no. Um, you know, I, I, you know, and I actually posted this on Twitter. Um, I wasn't surprised that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Juventus was one of the driving forces behind this with uh, Andre and Yelly. Um, and so I wasn't surprised that, you know, they were sort of involved in this. Um, disappointed, but not surprised just because, and again, I, I kind of said this publicly, you know, for, for, for far too often, they're on the wrong side of history, whether it's, um, you know, the Calciopoli scandal or, um, you know, combating racism in, in the stands. And not that that's a unique problem to Juventus, but I think they could be doing a lot more um, to the way that the broadcast rights are divvied up in Syria to, you know, basic stuff like supporting the, um, you know, the families of the survivors from the Hazel incident in 1985. I mean, they essentially turned their turned their back on those people and, and forgot about them for, for close to 20 years. So, you know, Juventus is, is not a paragon of virtue. Um, I, you know, believe me, I, I'm fully aware of that. Um, but, you know, will it sort of affect my relationship with the team? Uh, if I'm being honest, no. I mean, I don't I don't know that I would have had the Super League come about. I do think I am fairly confident in. I don't think I would have watched. I, I think that would have been, you know what? No, no I'm not going to be a part of this. I can't sort of watch it. So I, I will hold up my hand at, at that point and say, no, I wasn't going to support it. But, you know, will it make me stop loving Juventus any less? Um, frankly, no. It's, it's, it's a team I've supported since, I mean, literally since I was a five-year-old boy. Um, it's the team, you know, everyone in my family has supported. Uh, you know, when I was five years old, I was sitting at the kitchen table eating cereal and, you know, I hear screams from the basement one Sunday morning, like, what the hell is going on down there? And so I, I, you know, I go downstairs and it's my dad sitting in his uh, lazy boy chair, you know, yelling at the screen. And I'm like, dad, what's, you know, how come you're, what's going on? Why are you so upset? And like, oh, and what what are you watching? Well, I'm watching soccer. 
oh, well, who are those guys in the white and, and black stripes? Well, that's Juventus. Um, and, that, and that was it. I mean, from there, you know, the love affair kind of grew. And, you know, my dad was a supporter since he was a little boy growing up in Southern Italy. So all of my, essentially all my family in, in Italy, even though they're not from Turin, they're from Southern Italy, which if you know anything about Italian geography, Turin is, is you know, deep, deep North. And mm-hmm. where my family is from, we're from deep, deep South total polar opposites of the country mm-hmm. but they're Juventus supporters and so there's just that sort of family connection and I mean there was no you know you know I could never be a Roma fan I could never be an AC Milan fan because the, bluntly that just wasn't an option it wasn't how uh, you know I was raised so mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse you know this team is my obsession and it's in my blood and um, you know this while I was certainly, and again, I was, I was very public in my sort of uh, condemnation for Juventus and this entire thing, and you know, a shame that they were a part of it. Again, not surprised, just knowing their track record, but ashamed. Uh, but you know, if I'm being perfectly frank, uh, it's not going to change. I'm not going to suddenly, you know, become an Inter Milan fan tomorrow or adopt uh, Darlington as my club. I mean, that's just. <laughs> Uh, it's Sorry, just, Duncan. Oh, so wow. close. You know, it's just not going to happen. There's, I mean, there's still a lot of good with this club that I love. There's still a lot of rich history. There's still, you know, from watching players like Roberto Bettega and Claudio Gentile and Gaetano Shirea, who for me is one of the most, you know, greatest defenders of all time, to Michelle Platini, who, whatever you think of about him as, as, a, as a soccer sort of administrator, was a wonderfully <laughs> gifted player, to... You know, I could go on and on. Alessandro Del Piero and Dino Zoff and Gianluigi Buffon and so on and so forth. I, this is just a team I'm in love with. And, uh, you know, that love, that love was was shaken a bit this week, but it's never really going to waver to the point where I, where I give up on them. That's fair. I mean, especially when you, you, you pretty much outline like the whole, you know, they're not a paragon of virtue. Like that's, right. if, if you've come to expect it from high up above, on a regular basis, spanning what three decades, John? I'm not <laughs> guessing your age. That's not what this is about. <laughs> That's um, decade, but yeah, but yeah, like, like yeah, I, 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 from that approach, I can understand that, and I, I can, I can certainly, I can certainly wrap my head around how, you know. You're not, you're not surprised, but they're still. That's who they are, and that's who I am, and that's what this is. So I get it. So obviously, one of the the things that kind of just stop the Super League in its track and all the power of protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the fans were getting up there and saying, we don't want this, and that kind of forced people to climb down. So going back to, you know, the, the dark days of TFC, for example, you know, fan protests then, they, you know, have an effect. It was, you know, against this rising ticket prices and just general ownership and competence. Um, I mean, Again, going back to the Super League, it was the fans that drove this whole thing and caused it to to go back. Are you surprised that fans were that vehemently upset and that the clubs caved that quickly because of it? Uh, I wasn't surprised that the fans were sort of that vehement about it and that they were able to organize that quickly and let their voices be heard. Absolutely not surprised by that. Two things surprised me, Duncan. One was... Mm -hmm. Um, that, well, I guess it just shouldn't have, I mean, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me, but I guess it did. Um, surprised that, you know, the Super League teams announced this initiative 
without sort of consulting the fans. I mean, had they done just the simple, most, you know, basic, uh, I don't know what you would call it, sort of research on this, uh, <laughs> just, you know, a basic, hey, guys, this is kind of what we're thinking of doing. Uh, give us your feedback. Had they done that, you know, I think they could have avoided them, uh, you know, avoided this entire sort of embarrassment and having, you know, this egg on their faces. And maybe Ed Woodward wouldn't step down as, as chairman and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not. Um, but they didn't do that. I don't know if that was whether out of ignorance or just plain arrogance. Maybe they just thought, oh, the hell with the fans, you know, love it or lump it. You know, you're going to come along for the ride. And if you don't want to come along for the ride, then yeah, exactly. fine, we'll, we'll flee people, someone else. Uh, yeah, people have been but, fans since they were children. They won't abandon right. us. It's fine. Yeah. So, so maybe it's a combination of both. I mean, the other thing, too, is they're not terrible. I mean, for... I appreciate that they're multi-billion dollar entities and they're, you know, vast empires, but, you know, they're not always the smartest people. Right. And so <laughs> I just wonder if they actually no. just clued in about, you know, while we don't need to, to come in, bring fans into this conversation because, you know, of course they're going to come along for us. Um, so that was kind of one surprising. The one thing that sort of surprised me more is that, you know, how quickly it fell apart. Um, I thought from the start that this was going to fall apart. I thought this is, I've seen this before, you know, all the big sort of European clubs come together. It's one big power play. They're trying to force UEFA's hand to get bigger concessions out of them to have a bigger say in how the broadcast and, and digital rights and commercial rights are divvied up for UEFA. They want a larger say in that. They want a larger piece of the pie. This is them just kind of like putting the squeeze on UEFA, right? And so, and that, and that's what this was essentially. So, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't terribly surprised when I heard Sunday night, the news about, you know, this is what's coming down. I was surprised that, you know, this house of cards essentially, and that's what it was fell apart so quickly, even with like all the fan protests, I just thought, you know, they're going to be so bullheaded. They're just going to be so narrow-minded. They're going to push ahead with this and they're going to like, at least give it like a month, a good fight just to see, They'll, we'll see, you know, I think they adopt the, I thought they were going to adopt the mentality. We'll ride this out a little bit this first week with kind of like uh-huh. these waters. Uh, once we get past this, then we can kind of step, start to chip away at like the fan sort of confidence and, and the protests and really kind of get people on board. Uh, you know, and uh, really thought they would kind of give it a month at the very least. And, Cause I thought they were kind of a bit more committed to the fight, but to see it come down after less than two days, I got to be honest, that sort of surprised me in a good way. I mean, oh, yeah. more, power, more power to them. I think it's, you know, and again, this is, you know, I think this is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, this is nothing short of what, you know, Juventus and Barcelona and the other clubs fully deserve. I mean, they absolutely deserve to be looked to made look like the fools and the clowns that they are. And I think it absolutely looks absolutely brilliant on them for doing it. Mm-hmm. And I guess the follow-up to that would be, what would you see as a, a fair punishment for the clubs that tried this or the eventual outcome? Do you think there should be you know, fines, point deductions, you know, relegations like Juventus got back in the day? What, what should they do? I, I mean, I think all that should be considered. I mean, I would consider, you know, look, if we're up to me, I don't think these, I mean, you know, in a total, uh, you know, blue sky world, I think you do what 
uh, UEFA did to Liverpool in uh, you know in the in the wake of Heysel, in that you banned them from from Euro- from European competition, maybe not for five years, because if I remember correctly, that's what uh, Liverpool got, but certainly mm-hmm. like a year or a two year period, like yeah, you want to you want to sort of. Uh, uh, you know, you don't want to sort of be part of the Champions League and go off on your own, and now you're kind of come crawling back to us. Well, screw you. I mean, I would kick them out of the Champions League personally for like a year at least. Um, that's not going to That's not going <laughs> to happen. Uh, UEFA for for all the tough talk that they sort of gave during when all this was kind of breaking out about well, we're not going to let players you know play for their national team, and we're going to you know make it hard for you to play in your own domestic leagues. I mean. You know, maybe they would have gotten, maybe they would have followed through with those. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think they're complicit to a large degree in a, in a lot of this. And, you know, I think uh-huh. whatever sort of punishment is going to come down is going to be very minimal. But again, if it were me, I think you ban them from, from Champions League or playing from Europe for like at least a year and maybe two, or at the very, very least, I mean, hit them where it hurts, you know, in their pocketbook. Not that banning them from Champions League wouldn't hurt them in the pocketbook, it would. But, you know, heavy fines. And I'm not talking about, you know, those chintzy racism fines that they hand out whenever, you know, there are monkey chants in the stands. I mean, I'm talking about multi-million dollar pounds worth of of fines here. But again, that's not going to happen. I suspect UEFA is going to sort of welcome them back into the fold with, with welcome arms as if, you know, nothing has happened. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, ban all these clubs for a year. What are they going to do? They're going to go and just play against themselves right. and essentially just start up a Super League amongst themselves anyway. So probably best not to let them do that. But yeah, it should be something, you'd hope. But probably not. But probably not. But we can hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Silly football. John, how are you doing? How are you doing? You, you still settled? You still good? You still, have good. Another, yeah. you still have another like two hours in you? Or are you, are you, settled? <laughs> you haven't, you haven't, you haven't scared me off yet. So it's all good. It's true. You Working haven't closed out. your, you haven't closed your laptop once. This is disappointing. Yeah. No. All I right. Did, I did go to the fridge for some lemonade, but other than that, it was, you know, pretty, that, but that was only because <laughs> I was thirsty. So. Uh-huh. Sure. 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 All right. Well, one of the, well, these, these are all the reasons we brought you here, but Obviously, we really want to talk to you about Toronto FC, um, sure. as you've been, you know, part of the Toronto FC scene since the beginning. So this is TFC Talk, where we talk about TFC. And, you know, yeah, we want to pick your brains about 15 years of Toronto FC. So um, <laughs> year one, I'm just kidding. We have broken it into segments as best we can. And um, focusing on some questions that really someone of your tenure is going to be, you know, best able to answer and so we're gonna we're gonna dive right into sort of the early years um and you know those first few years of Toronto FC were there's even just looking back on it like it's such a weird time it was it was sort of a very 
unfettered almost kind of thing, you know, like there's the initial excitement of getting the club here in Toronto. Um, like those first few, that first year, especially those first few matches, you know, the home opener, the goal drought, the, the seat cushions mm. and, you know, the, the, you know, the atmosphere, you know, everyone talking about the atmosphere. I remember after the first match, my parents calling me and asking if the cameras were just, if they just had really bad cameramen because it looked like the stands were shaking. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> the stands are shaking. I'm like, no, this is, this is actually happening. They're like, oh, okay. And to have that, even though the first year was nothing to write home about in terms of performances, um, but to be, you know, to be a fan, to be part of that, that excitement, that first year of excitement papered over, you know, gaping cracks in, in the organization. And that sort of worked for a couple years, but even still we end up, you know, fairly savvy fans in Toronto. There's a, there's people from, you know, that, you know, huge diversity of backgrounds, a lot of football knowledge, a lot of passion. And, um, you know, we start to get frustrated with the club with how the club is being handled with the player turnover, with the coach turnover, um, which happened for longer than the first few years, but it was really, it sort of felt like the, the mark of the franchise right out the gate. And so one of the things I really curious about from your perspective is just how clueless was the ownership in the early days? Uh, pretty clueless. Uh, I get, you know, I have to be remarkably honest here. Um, I think it gets, it's been said so often it's kind of been, well, not so much written about anymore. Um, but, um, that, you know, this was a, for so many years, a dysfunctional franchise, not just on the field, but behind this, behind the scenes, um, that I think because it kind of been talked about and then written about so much that, I'm not sure people sort of appreciated that it's just like, oh, well, there's, you know, probably some fables or, or myths in there or whatnot. But uh, let me assure you, um, and you'll pardon my language here, this was an absolute shit show of a franchise for the longest time, of the highest degree. I we cannot, love language. Go for it. Okay, I cannot stress <laughs> enough how poorly run of an organization this was. Uh, from, you know, player recruitment to the hiring of coaches to the firing of coaches to, you know, the person that they brought in to the first GM to put, sort of put this team together to then giving that guy a, a new contract and resigning him um, to <laughs> the people in MLSE who were sort of put in charge of this project, who, um, you know, a few of them who I knew who are, you know, on a personal level who are good people. They are not, evil people, but should not have been had their hands anywhere near this to, I mean, I could go on and on. There's a, there was so much, I mean, dysfunction was the order of the day. There's absolutely no two ways about it. Now that's not to say that there weren't good people and competent people in sort of key positions during those early years. There absolutely was. I mean, my hat goes off to guys like Earl Cochran, who, you know, I think was employee number two or three, um, to, you know, certain scouts to, you know, there were good players brought aboard, uh, you know, for them to get someone like Carl Robinson at the time was a pretty big deal because, you know, he was, you know, a pretty high caliber player in England, mm -hmm. and get him to come to, to MLS, you know, he had never played out of the UK before, 
So to get to him, get him to come to the, to the, to this, and, and MLS hadn't been around all that long to begin with at the time. So to get him was, was in a pretty, you know, big move and, and hats off to Mo. I mean, he was able to pull that off. Uh, so I don't want to sort of paint it as a portrait of, you know, they didn't do anything right. Clearly they did. And clearly, you know, I don't think, I think one thing they don't get enough credit for is sort of the fan atmosphere that they really kind of let grow organically. I mean, they didn't get in the way too much. I think they kind of, you know, took a very hands-off approach and just let, you know, Hey, they got this. We don't have to sort of, you know, come out with, you know, cheerleaders or mascots or, um, you know, halftime shows or whatnot. We'll just let kind of the fans have a good time and that will take care of the fan atmosphere. And it really was at the time, you know, I, I think not just the best fan atmosphere in Toronto sports, but the best fan atmosphere in the league. So, oh, 100%. So there were positives, but again, I cannot overstate <laughs> how poorly this team was run for the longest time. And I think, you know, the classic example is, you know, they gave Mo Johnson a second contract. I mean, <laughs> that set them back, you know, in my, in my humble estimation, five years, several, several years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, had they cut bait after the 20, whatever it was 18, eight season or nine season. I can't remember when he resigned. I think it was 2009, but that could have saved them a lot of heartache and aggravation that could have, because he was one of the major problems those early years. Um, but they doubled down on that. And that, I mean, I can't even begin to speak to how catastrophic that, that of a move that was because he was a large sort of source of the dysfunction um, to hiring a guy like Aaron Vinter, who God bless Aaron, fantastic human being, a real gentleman, I enjoyed like just him on a personal level because he was probably the most polite person I've ever spoken to in my life. Um, just an unbelievable, warm, friendly, uh, just gentle guy, but should never have been hired in the first place. I mean, you know, maybe as a technical director or in charge of the youth Academy, I could see that, but as a first team coach for, a, for, you know, for a team in a league that he really didn't understand, uh, no, it was absolutely the wrong move to, I mean, the whole Jurgen Klinsmann thing. I mean, uh, you know, uh. I can't even get my head around that, uh, <laughs> to, to, you know, Ryan Nelson, who, you know, he was still playing at the time when they hired him and, um, you know, they were making, I can remember Kevin Payne saying something to the fact of, well, you know, we wanted to sign him now because, you know, we, we didn't want to lose the possibility of not being able to bring him as a coach. Um, as though this was like Pep Guardiola in waiting, you know, as if, <laughs> as if the Colorado Rapids and FC Dallas or the LA Galaxy were going to, you know, swoop in to get this guy. Um, you know, it was as if he had uh, one coaching certificate. Right. I can, I, it's funny you bring that up, Duncan, because I can remember specifically at his introductory press conference, I asked them point blank in the press conference, what kind of coaching certificates do you have? Have you done UEFA badges? you know, anything. And it was like blank stares. And it was just like, <laughs> Oh my God. Like, you know, to, you know, I could go on and on. Oh, the, I mean, here's another classic example. So, you know, the whole Precky thing, I think, you know, he was another kind of shit disturber, um, you know, great player in his day. And I, I appreciate that he had some success earlier in his, in his career, but but you know, a terrible coach, the right, the, the absolutely wrong fit for that. <laughs> team. 
sorry, John. Sorry, John. Duncan uh, loves Precky so, so very much. So very much. I'm sorry. Okay. I was trying to hold it in. But please do continue because okay. we love this. This yeah. is wonderful. I mean, I, I mean, an absolute. Duncan's like, go on. An absolute. I mean, first of all, a terrible human being. I mean, he was just like, I don't know. I still to this day, I still don't know if he even enjoys football. Because... <laughs> I never saw the man smile. I mean, it was always. It was John, always I, got a, I got a bunch of indoor soccer cards of him. He wasn't Wait, smiling in those either. He was, John, John, I have a goal celebrations. About it. Have you heard the Apple story? The something Apple to story? Do, something to do with the kit man and apples and making him go to the store to buy apples. I don't know. This is something that someone alluded to. Oh, maybe, I'm, you know, I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, it's possible. But I mean, he was just like, again, I've never saw the man smile. It just seemed like he was like, you know, he was being held at gunpoint to come to coach that team. And again, I appreciate that, you know, he was put in a very difficult position and um, you know, whether it was Tom and Selmy or who's the guy uh, I'm trying to think of the head of MLSE. Um, Richard Petty. Petty. Thank you. Um, uh. You know, they, they put him in a very <laughs> difficult position and those guys, I mean, again, nice people but you know <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't necessarily have them on the front lines of running this thing but Preki was an insufferable person who was not a people person uh wasn't a very good coach and just i mean he lost the room almost immediately um but even getting i mean beyond that what, what i wanted to say was just to tell you the level of dysfunction so under him they let go sam cronin Traded him to San Jose for, I mean, I can't even remember, but it was, was it two sandwiches. Was it two sandwiches maybe. and a deflated ball? Right. And that was, and that was, and that was a terrible trade because I mean, Sam Cronin at the time, I thought, you know, here was a young kid and he was a young kid because they just drafted him the year before who I felt at the time could have been with the team for a very long time. Here was, was a good guy, a good player who you could have built, maybe not necessarily the team around, but could be a good solid core piece. And as we've seen, I mean, Sam Cronin has gone, I mean, I think he's, I don't think he's officially retired or maybe he has, but he went on to play something like 250 or 300 MLS games. So, and they, and they let him go for nothing. So um, the funny story was the following year when Arn Vinter and the whole sort of Dutch crew come in, they're playing a home game against San Jose. They end up losing uh, Sam Cronin has, I don't think he scored, but he played a really good game. And so after the game, we're down, you know, talking to players in the locker room and whatnot. And, and on my way out, I bump into Bob DeClerc, who was um, our inventor's assistant coach. And we were sort of talking about, uh, you know, things and, and talking about the game. And, uh, and, he, and he said, oh, you know who, 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 you know, really impressed me on that San Jose team was that Sam Cronin. Yeah, we can use a player like him around here. Magic. That's what he said. He said we can use a player like him around here. Magic. And I did not have the heart to tell him, you know. I and I should have, but I said, well, you know, it's funny you say that because you know the previous uh, coach didn't think so because they they let him go for uh, you know a bag of beans basically. So um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I cannot from you know to 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 John Carver who was. Great guy. I love dealing with John because he was a he was an absolute riot. He was great to deal with and a great quote machine, but uh, didn't understand the league. Um, didn't understand sort of the intricacies of MLS. Shouldn't have been put in charge. Um, got a great John Carver story that remind me. I'll tell you about later in the show. But um, 
to Chris Cummins, who this is another great story I'll, I'll, I'll share, but he was, he was the one coach who really kind of like bollocked me out for a good 10 minutes. Um, um, you know, should never have been put in charge. So, yeah, I mean, I cannot sort of overstate it. This was a, uh, this was a laughing stock of a franchise for a very long time. And it was be, a large part of it was due to the way it was run behind the scenes. And again, I cannot sort of uh, tell you how badly, you know, uh, and frustrating it was to cover this team for a very long time. Well, then the, did they do anything right? Yeah, like, other than the atmosphere and Carl Robinson. We know a lot, like, we knew a lot of, uh, like, those of us who endured. I mean, it was really suffering, but endured. Those first forever years, um, we, like, we knew it was, like, you're just confirming the circus we already knew, uh, or at least speculated, heavily speculated, but did, in in your eyes, being that close, seeing the shit show for what it was, did you, at, at any point, like, did you go, okay, you know what? They did really nail this thing. Yeah. I mean, again, I do think they, you have to give them credit for, you know, the fan atmosphere and sort of building that sort of loyal fan base. And again, it would have been so easy for them to get their uh, incompetent hands on it and really kind of foul it up. But they really, I think, just let it grow organically and let the sort of fans take charge of that. And um, you know, that was by design. That wasn't, you know, they weren't sort of fighting themselves off to like get involved. I think they were, they made a conscious decision. Hey, look, we see what's kind of going in, off in, in front of our eyes. Let's just sort of take a hands-off approach and let, and let the fans kind of build this. I think that was, a, you know, a, a remarkably wise decision from what they did, because again, at the time, um, it was the best fan experience in Toronto sports and in the league. And there were other things too. I mean, look, Carl Robinson was a great signing, um, you know, you know, getting more, uh, even though it was the number one pick. So, I mean, it would have been pretty easy to follow it up, getting someone like Maurice, a and then sort of tr- selling him on like the following year for a pretty big for grass. Um, you know, that was a, pr- that was a pretty, you know, astute piece of business. Um, you know, and there were some sort of magical nights, you know, you think about like the miracle in Montreal and how they kind of, you know, came back and, and, and won the Canadian championship. Um, didn't think that was possible after, you know, earlier in the group stage, and especially when they went down one nothing early in that game. So there were, there were things that they did right, um, but not a lot of them. I mean, I think, you know, the main sort of storyline for the first seven, eight years, whatever it was, was that this is a, this is a poorly run team uh, who cannot get it right, both on the field and behind the scenes. It's great. We're loving this because you're just sort of like, we've got questions down. We're here. We're like, okay, strike that one. He's answered that. Okay, we'll just move on from that. Um, but one thing, like, you know, the worst team in the world, right? So talking about Aaron oh, Venter's man. time, um, you know, the reputation for futility, you know, not enhanced by the losing streak that 
did give us one of the greatest quotes ever um, that we still use all the time. Um, But uh, so, you know, Aaron Venter, who you've already spoken about, um, but, oh, sorry, Mark, this is, this is, uh, this is for you. I, I'm just, I'll just jump in then. Um, Because, you know, like Aaron Venter did apparently a lot of things wrong by many accounts, but the one thing, and I admit, I was a fan of his because I was a fan of his potential influence on an academy for Toronto FC and was disappointed that that didn't happen. Um, But like, did he do anything right? Like I look at the CCL, but I'm also curious because I know one of the things that came out in the media um, and I've heard other people say this, you know, but I remember seeing media stuff talking about players being upset about him insisting that they be professional going to and from games and how they dressed and stuff like was that really that big of a bone of contention and was he really that wrong to have done that well i don't know that it was that big of a bone of contention i mean it's um you know it's probably you know i never that never sort of came up in in any of the sort of off the record conversations i had with players but he certainly did hold players to sort of high standards especially in training um you know i think i think what the problem was with arn was he came into a situation where he just expect the players to be at a higher level than they were um, that, you know, he wouldn't have to go over sort of basic stuff uh, in training. He just already kind of assumed that the players would have to be were at a certain level where he, he wouldn't have to sort of drain sort of drive this stuff into the players' heads. And for a lot of them, they weren't, um, you know, certainly had players like Torsten Frings and Danny Kobermans, but there were a lot of, uh, shall we say average players on that side that, Certainly didn't make life easy for him. I think the other thing with Arn is, and again, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Arn because he really was a, a true gentleman and a classy guy. Um, but I do think there was a cultural and not even a language difference, but a communication sort of problem. Um, you know, English wasn't necessarily, I mean, he spoke good English, but it wasn't his first language. And so I think a lot of times, you know, what he wanted to do was just kind of lost in transa- translation. I mean, I can remember, you know, players, one player telling me like after kind of like a team meeting, he came out of it and he says, you know, I don't know what he wants from us. Like, I literally do not understand what he just said. Um, so I think that was an issue with Aaron. Uh, but again, um, did he do some things right? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at it, I believe players like Ashton Morgan, uh, Daniil Henry, a lot of the Canadians kind of got their start under him. And when you talk to them today, I can remember interviewing Ashton Morgan a couple of years ago. I mean, he's very grateful to our inventor for everything he, you know, for the opportunity he gave him. And he was very big on ga- giving not just Canadians a chance, but young players a chance. And so that's, you know, that's to be commended. I mean, and oftentimes he did it when it wasn't in his, his, his interest or his team's best interest. Um, you know, it was just because philosophically that's where he was in the soccer world. So, you know, again, should not have been hired for that job though. Um, as great as a player he was, and he was, I mean, you know, I remember as a Serie A fan, I remember him playing for Inter Milan and Lazio and seeing him score in a world cup. This was a fantastically gifted and, you know, marquee player in his day. Um, and, it's good to see that he's doing some coaching now. I think he's with like the, is it the Polish, uh, one of the national teams. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, and I know he was in the IAC system recently as well. So, so that's great. 
but you know, as an MLS coach, I mean, it was, you know, about as a terrible hire as you could get. I mean, had they brought him into oversee the Academy or as a technical director, that would have been a probably better fit, but as a, as a, as a franchise looking to find its way after, you know, the four or five years that came before it, uh, that's not what they needed. They didn't need a coach who was new to code, was new as a senior coach and really kind of new to MLS and had to find his footing. What they needed was, you know, an experienced coach who knew the league, who could kind of hit the ground running. Aaron was not that, um, as much as I love him. I mean, God bless him. Fantastic guy. I can remember when, uh, I left my job at CBC to, to go to Sportsnet. I mean, he called the PR person of TSC cause he wanted my number and he called me at home congratulating me on the job. And, and we, you know, it was a very nice thing to do. And even when he left, when he was sort of let go by TFC, um, they didn't do a goodbye press conference for him. Uh, and it wasn't, and it wasn't because they didn't want to, but he decided that he didn't want to because for whatever reason, I guess it's a Dutch thing. They don't like to be the center of attention. Um, and he didn't want to sort of have like a big, long sort of emotional goodbye. But what he did do was, again, he called me at home and sort of thanked me for everything, uh, for all the coverage I provided for the club. And it wasn't just me he called. He called, you know, Luke Wildman. He called uh, Larry Milson, who was the Globe and Mail beat reporter at the time. He went around and called all the regular reporters who covered the team, you know, one-on-one to thank them um, because, you know, he hadn't had the press conference, so he didn't get a chance to sort of say a formal goodbye. That's the kind of guy he was fantastic human being uh, terrible coach should never have been hired as <laughs> coach. all right did you have a favorite uh did you have a favorite gaffer in your time uh, who, who would who would be your favorite um uh, and i mean i know you kind of touched least favorite but that's pretty scattershot you, you took yeah, that I mean, a bunch so yeah i mean one of six <laughs> yeah i mean least favorite it is a tie it is between Precky and mo i mean mo was um God, terrible to deal with. I mean, you just look at the way he ran practice. I mean, the players kind of complained. They didn't know what the hell was going. And again, um, just on a sort of basic sort of level, he wasn't a nice guy. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, funny story. Um, so during the sort of been 2009, I think, they, there was some sort of deal with him and Dickio where there was some, there was some sort of dispute behind the scenes I can't even remember what it was, but, um, you know, Cummins wasn't playing him on road games for some reason. And like, they came out with like this ridiculous kind of statement saying his bag. Yeah. His bag. Well, he can't travel or something like that. And I'm like, yep. what are you talking about? We're like, what? And so, you know, I wrote some pretty, um, you know, critical columns about like, you know, how can this be? I mean, what are we talking about? I mean, Ryan Giggs at the time was still playing for man United and he was, you know, flying in planes for Champions League games. So you're telling me Dickio can't, you know, fly to Chicago or something like that? I mean, I'm sorry. That's just absurd. And so I was writing some columns about this. And so I remember I, I sort of posted on Twitter about I was going on Fan 590 that evening to, to talk about, you know, the situation with Dickio and whatnot. And so I get a, um, I didn't, believe it or not, I didn't have a cell phone at the time. Um, but I get an email from, from Mo. And he says, I heard you're going on the radio tonight. Just want to let you know, I'll be listening closely. I'm marking your card. (laughs) (laughs) And 
What a wink. And oh my God. And so me being of Italian heritage, marking your card was not an idiom I was at all familiar with. I had no idea what that meant. And I guess this was the kind of the day before you kind of Googled stuff. Before I was like, marking your card. Well, like what? I couldn't tell from like the context of what he's saying. It means he's I was very excited for your, uh, yeah. Well, he's just really looking forward to hearing what you're yeah, going to really, say. Yeah, really, yeah. He's just calling to wish you good luck. And so, yeah. and so what, and so what I did was I, I immediately, I called Nigel Reed, who was my good friend at the time. I said, Nigel, I just kind of got this weird message from Mo. He's saying, you know, I'm, he's going to be listening to me, uh, like on the show. And, uh, he's going to, he says, you know, I'm marking your card. And he's like, you know, what does that mean? And Nigel basically said, he's threatening you, John. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not, it's not a nice thing. He's, you know, he's essentially like, you know, he's essentially threatening you. That's the kind of guy Mo was. I mean, he had such thin skin that, you know, anything critical, he would, you know, set him off. So, um, yeah, him and Precky, not good to deal with. Brian Nelson, I didn't particularly um, have much affinity for because, again, uh, shouldn't have been hired. And just he could be very prickly and very, I don't know, didn't really sort of respect, uh, you know, what we were doing uh, as journalists. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, Loved Aaron, great guy, very humble, very sort of, um, again, just the politest guy with dealing with media. I mean, you have to give him credit. He was getting hammered each week with as those losses piled up in the, you know, in the O and whatever it was, nine start. And, you know, every week with every loss, it was like, get this guy out of here, whatnot. And I tell you, the guy did not hold grudges. He did not sort of freeze anybody out to not hold it against anyone who wrote anything negative about him. It was like, no, you guys are doing your job. As long as you're doing it in a fair sort of manner, we have no problem. So absolutely respect. I have a world of respect for, for, uh, Aaron. Uh, and the other guy was Greg. I mean, again, fantastic human being really, really just a decent, good guy. And in terms of accessibility, you know, easily the best coach in TFC history. I mean, he would do scrums where, you know, I, I've talked to sort of, you know, my colleagues who cover other teams, whether it's the Jays or Leafs or Raptors. And a lot of coaches, when they're in a media scrum, whether it's that practice of the game, it's like they're looking at their watch, right? They're looking to like get out of there as quickly as they can. Um, the former Leafs coach, I can't remember his name, the guy who coached Detroit Red Wings, a pretty famous guy. Um, Cook. Sorry? Yeah. Mike Babcock. Right, right. I mean, guys, guys I know who cover the least told me that, you know, Babcock was famous for kind of saying, okay, that's it. I'm not, you know, I'm done with this after like three or five minutes. Vanny was the complete opposite. I mean, he would go for as long as you wanted to talk. It wasn't unheard of him, you know, at a practice to do a media scrum for 30 minutes. I mean, that's unheard of in, in, in sort of media sports coverage of teams. Absolutely unheard of. He was engaging. He liked talking to media. And it wasn't because he was trying to get something or try to win us over to his side. I think, you know, I think it was just generally because he, he knew that we had a job to do and he was respectful of that. And he wanted to have a conversation with us. And he would go out of his way to like talk to people and sort of give thoughtful, you know, meaningful answers. Whenever you heard him speak, you know, there was, I mean, 
he was pretty forthright and truthful and there was very little spin going. I mean, he, he called it as it is. And again, just very incredibly generous with his time. I mean, just, you know, I cannot stress that enough. So he was um, fantastic to deal with on top of just being, you know, I think, you know, obviously the best coach in team history, he was, I don't think he gets nearly enough due for everything. He sort of helped to sort of change the culture of that team around, you know, absolutely, a, you know, a massive influence in that regard. But, you know, you know, if we're talking about like the favorite coach to deal with, um, you know, Greg is, is, is number one. Chris is, I like what I've seen so far. Uh, I have to say he's very engaging. Um, doesn't give us quite as much information on injuries as, as I would like, like Greg did. Greg, Greg was like, you ask him the condition of anyone. And he was like almost to a fault. He would say, Oh yeah, this guy's going to be out such and such. There's no way he's playing. Um, Chris, a little bit more crafty and not forthcoming, but the early signs are that he's a very engaged with kind of the media. And I think that helps out, right? I mean, helps us out and cause it helps us tell better stories, which are of course better for readers. So, um, but definitely Greg is, is the one guy I would stand out for me who stood out above all, of all other coaches to deal with. Fair enough. Going back to pre Greg days, all the managers you've dealt with, not as far as how they deal with the media, but just kind of on the field pitch, which of them deserved longer at TFC or deserve another chance somewhere else? I don't think any of them have had any like head coaching jobs like anywhere else, really. Dasso, that's like it, really? Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because that's what I was going to say. Nick Dasovic, I mean, what, what, whatever it was, I think 10 games he was in charge during the interim basis. Um, mm. It's scandalous that this guy's not an MLS coach. I mean, absolutely scandalous. I'm not, you know, I think it's because he's Canadian because of his passport, but this guy should be a head coach. I mean, the fact that he hasn't been hired since then, I, you know, I have no other, I don't have any explanation for it other than the fact that he's Canadian. Would have loved for, for him to have been given a little bit more of an opportunity, um, if not at TFC, at somewhere else, because I think he was someone who knows the game, is tactically astute, really can kind of get the most out of players and just connects with players on a one-on-one basis. And it would have been interesting to see how, you know, had he, had he sort of been given a bit more time, you know, would the same changes sort of, you know, come uh, and what kind of fingerprint he would have put on this team. Um, yeah. So, so Nick Dasovic is someone, you know, I have, I've always kind of thought about, man, would have been interesting had he been given a bit, bit more of a, a run at this, but uh, you know, sadly for him, it didn't work out that way. Um, You've told you, this, this has been so great to sort of like, not necessarily revisit the old days, but get, you know, some more background information or confirmation of things that we've heard or that we know or um, so on. But again, you've, you've, you've been, you've seen a lot. Um, and there's always, you know, there's, there's stories that never get told or rarely get told or don't get told for years later. So is there anything like from the early days that they were like, John, John, do not mm. report on this, that you kind of really wish you, you, you had, or that, that you can tell us about now? Well, I mean, there's, there's a few things where like, I only had one source on it right? and had I gone with it, then it would have potentially caused them a lot of damage, but I didn't go with it only because I, I only had the one source. And typically, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm sort of breaking a story, then I want to hear from at least two independent separate sources. 
So there were things that sure I didn't report on because of that. And it really wouldn't be fair for me to kind of go into it now because it's, you know, I, I just wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, there is one thing, I mean, I, I do have to tell this story and I think I mentioned it earlier about with, with the altercation I had with Chris Cummins. Yes, um, please do. So this is pretty funny. So this was stemming from the Dickio thing I, I mentioned earlier about whatever he wasn't sort of like traveling for road games. So they come out with this, again, this absolutely ridiculous statement. And I'm just, you know, I'm all over this in my columns and just saying, what kind of nonsense is this? And so finally, um, you know, we're at BMO Field for a practice. And, uh, you know, I talked to Chris and I'm just like, Chris, can you shed any light on this? Because, you know, and I said bluntly, I said, come on, like, you can't tell me, you can't honestly tell me that the reason why, you know, Dickie didn't travel on the weekend to wherever it was, was because he's too old and he can't like, you know, bear like the airplane travel. I mean, you just, you, you can't tell me that. It's gotta be like, just <laughs> give me, give me the real reason. And he was just like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, said, I don't remember specifically what he said, but it was just like, that's our story and we're sticking to it. But I'll never forget what he said at the end of his answer. He said, you know, and if you doubt me, you can ask the other players. And so that's exactly what I did. So after that scrum with 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 um, with Cummins, you know, traditionally I practice. It's the coach who scrums first, and then they'll bring out players and they'll do one on ones or they'll scrum. And so they brought out, you know, one player after another. And each player, I asked each player when it came to my turn, I kind of let other reporters kind of get their question in because I didn't want to ask that right off the bat because then it's going to poison the scrum, right? And they might get pissed off, and then people other reporters might get their questions in and, you know, I'm certainly, you know, the devil incarnate. So I kind of held back a little bit and towards the end of the media scrum and I just, each, each kind of like player, I just asked, I said, what's going on with Dickio? Like, you know, this stuff about him not traveling because he's too old or can't like stand it. Can you shed any light on this? And, you know, kind of got nondescript answers. And then the next guy would come out and it was the same thing. And the next guy would come out. I think it got to about four or five players. I can't remember, but it was Sam Cronin. And he said something about, and I can't even remember, I'm paraphrasing, but it was just like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds weird to me, but if the coach says he can't travel, he can't travel. And so the PR person at the time was a woman named Michelle Lessel. And so she had noticed what was kind of going on and she went to go get Cummins and so <laughs> before they brought the next player out for the scrums, Cummins comes out and he sort of taps me on the shoulder. He says, oh, John, can do you mind me sort of joining me in this room? Just want to have a chat with you. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'm not sort of over-exaggerating this. For the next 10 minutes, it's F you and F this. And, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And it's just like... <laughs> Don't you know who the F I am? I've been in football since, you know, so-and-so. And and who the hell are you? You're just a writer. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. And why are you trying to stir up all this nonsense? And um, and this and that. And Chris Cummins, I mean, I don't know what you remember of him, but like on camera anyway, pretty even killed. Yeah, sort of, seems sort of gentlemanly sort of person. Yeah. Right. And so to sort of be on the receiving end of this sort of, you know, foul mouth, profanity laced, you know, screaming tirade was just like completely, uh, completely caught me off guard. And 
you know, what, you know, what could I do? I just stood there for 10 minutes. as <laughs> He just kind of like, just kind of like berated me with F-bombs. And then towards the end, and, you know, I probably shouldn't have said this, but towards the end, he goes to me, you know, and why are you talking to the, all the players? Like, like asking him all these questions. And I, and I kind of stoked the fire. I just said, well, Chris, you told me to. Nice. Like you said, if I don't believe you that you should, you know, I should talk to the players. So I'm just doing what you said. Well, I mean, another, <laughs> another, five, 10 minutes minutes? Of, another five minutes of F-bombs and this and that. And, and, you know, he kind of stormed out of the room and, you know, that was uncomfortable in the aftermath because I mean, for about two or three weeks, he, he kind of froze me out in, in scrums. I mean, I would get one or two word answers and, and just nonsense. And he really wouldn't sort of, sort of look my way. And I think he got a couple of the players in and on it as well. Um, but then it died down and went back to normal, but that was, I mean, I can remember that happening. And to this day, it was just like, Oh my God. I mean, you know, Chris really went off on, and that was really, you know, aside from Mo threatening to, to mark my card. Um, well, Jim Brennan, I mean, he had a couple of goes at me as well. I mean, he pulled me. <laughs> oh God, seriously. Um, but I mean, he had a problem Brennan. with like a lot of people. It wasn't just me, but yeah, well, yeah, really. I mean, the, the one time was, was Cummins when he was just, I mean, you know, whew, I, whew, man, <laughs> I, that was really something to sit there and just, like I said, and I couldn't get a word in. It was just, I just, you, I just had to sit, stand there and take it as he kind of like, you know, hurled, um, you know, uh, F-bombs at me one after another. I, I just love the idea that out of all the people throughout TFC who might have said, don't you know who I am? It's <laughs> Chris, it Chris Cummins. I, oh, oh. It was, yeah. Oh, Not Paul Mariner. <laughs> it wasn't Paul Mariner, I think is what we're all thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian Nelson had a very good playing career. Mo Johnson yes. as well. I, I yeah, Chris Cummins. Okay. Chris Cummins. Um, anyway, moving on. Who's the, the, the most underrated uh, TFC player again, kind of like sticking to those pre good times era. Who's yeah. like one player from that whole shit show time was really underrated that you think of? Well, I, I don't know that he was underrated, Duncan, but I th certainly think he was underappreciated at the time. Was Carl Robinson? Um, and again, mm -hmm. I know it's I know it's an obvious, you know that might seem like a weird answer, but you know this was a guy. I mean, he was voted Team MVP those those first two years and okay, like the competition wasn't that stiff considering they, how bad they were, <laughs> but uh, he really was a quality player. And like when they signed him, I was just like, really, they're getting Carl Robinson. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and credit to Carl. He was fully committed. I mean, he didn't, it, it was obvious, you know, he was the wrong side of 30. So he was, it was, uh, you know, this was the last sort of stretch of, of his career, but he didn't come here with the mentality, like a lot of, sort of players from overseas that, you know, this is a vacation. This is just, you know, one last sort of home stretch to play at the string. He was firmly committed to the cause. He was, gave his all, was a great leader, was, a, you know, a, a quality teammate to guys all around him. Um, helped bring Andy Welsh in. After, I mean, I should hold that against him, but I don't. Um, but he, you know, was that kind of guy where he would put in a good word for people he knew, you know, across the pond to, to help bring them in. Um, so he was someone who, you know, I'm not sure, you know, people even to this day fully appreciate what he brought because his is a very, is a very subtle game, a subtle position. It's, it's, you know, much like Michael Bradley, it's not a position where you score a lot of goals or create a lot or, 
you know, just there's a lot of sort of flair to their game, but it's crucial to the sort of makeup of a team. And so, you know, Carl very much did that in those early years, much like, you know, Bradley has since, since coming here several years ago. So Robbo for me is someone who I always thought was undervalued and underappreciated. So John, I don't know if you know, you realize this, that you have now forever endeared yourself to me. Huge. He is, he is still probably my favorite TFC player of all time Um, or right up there within my top three. I, I loved his play. Um, yeah, for all the things that you've said. So it's just nice to get confirmation from someone else. I feel, I mean, I feel, I feel better now about my assessment of, of, of soccer players. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I should, I mean, a lot of other guys I could mention. I mean, I think I oh, already yeah. mentioned Sam Cronin, who, again, criminally treated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another one is Edson Buddle, who, you know, when they signed him, huh, when they signed wow. him, I mean, he was. He was a pretty good goal scorer previously at, I think it was New York and Columbus, if I'm not mistaken. I'd I'd have to to remember. Um, Columbus for sure. And then he comes here and, you know, it's 10 games and he doesn't score. You know, he did have a hand in setting up Dickio's first goal. So there was that. But after 10 games, you know, Mo being Mo (laughs) and having the sort of attention span of a child, uh, you know, decides to ship him out. He goes to LA and he ended up scoring something like 50 goals over the next you know, four and a half years. Um, I appreciate that, you know, he was in a bit of a, well, he was in a scoring rut when he went here, but uh, could have been, I would have liked to seen him given a bit more time um, because I think, again, this was a quality player and for them to sort of, you know, cut bait on him after only 10 games, you know, uh, talk about criminal. That was criminal. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. One last question from that holy ref. I don't remember the exact date of it, but I associate it with that era because it's just like it. Oh. Um, remember when they bought Paolo Rossi here and mm. they were like introduced him to the crowd and everything, and they did it like 20 minutes or so before the game when there was barely anyone in the stadium. And that's just one that has, you know, often like stood out as, yeah, that's just terrible. I mean, obviously, as an Italian supporter, I mean, was that a very sort of disappointing moment for how they handled that for you? I, I have to be honest with Duncan. I don't remember him sort of him in, them introducing him to the crowd or whatnot. Is that what they did beforehand? Yeah, but they did a really bad job yes. of it. So we're not surprised you don't remember. Okay, <laughs> I do. So what I was going to say was I do remember meeting him that day because I think before like kickoff or before they had him do whatever it is they did he actually came to the media media room and he did a scrum with myself and like one or two other reporters. And so we got to sort of interview him for about, Mm -hmm. I want to say 10 or 15 minutes, um, which is pretty cool. So that's would have been 20, this would have been Seba's first season. So 2015. 2015, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Cause that was the sort of connection. So, you know, obviously we asked him about that, but for me being who I am, I wanted to talk about 1982 because I was eight years old at the time and I still remember it fondly. And my dad was at like, the semifinal and the final game in Spain where Italy won. So for me, that was, that was like special to, you know, Paul Rossi was like, you know, like wow. a god to me. So to be able to talk to him was pretty cool. But yeah, like, I didn't even know what you're saying about whatever pregame thing they did. That's yeah, that's totally news to me. But if they fouled it up, then that's a shame because he was, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty big guy. Rest in mm-hmm. peace. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well then we are going to move into, uh, 
the success years, as it were, um, which has been, you know, the last several years. And so it took a couple years, but there was an incremental shift uh, in the, the attitude uh, for TFC and how the franchise was being handled. Um, you know, you had the bloody big deal, uh, Tim Lewicki opening up the, the club coffers, uh, the club actually, you know, MLSE actually realizing that they need to spend money to make this happen. And then um, culminated, obviously, with the 2016-2017 seasons with all that success. And, you know, since then, Toronto, you know, seen as one of the big clubs, usually in the mix for things, that sort of stuff. So it's been, you know, it's been a far more pleasant six or seven years. And then, um, <laughs> Duncan, wouldn't you say? I would, yeah. So, I mean, basically the, the, the main question of this, I mean, how much of the success, I mean, is it down to, uh, they just opened up the, uh, the, the, the banks and spent a lot of money and you know, obviously Tim Wicky came in. How much is it about that or how much is it about you know, Greg Vanny and Bill Manning and you know, actually managing to spend all that money sensibly? What was the uh, key? I, yeah, I, I think it's the latter. I mean, I don't want to sort of just downplay the money sort of part of it because obviously, you know, MLSE is MLSE. Um, they're not exactly uh, hurting for coin. And, you know, they've got sort of massive resources behind them. And so, you know, the fact that they were able to sort of lure players the caliber of Sebastian Jabinko and Michael Bradley, um, uh, Josie Altador, Jermaine Defoe to a lesser <laughs> extent because he wasn't quite in his prime. But to get those three guys, like, in their prime, um, mm. you know, I, I, they absolutely fell in love with the city. You know, no one questions that, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a business and had MLSE not ponied up the dough, they weren't coming here. I mean, that's just, let, let's be realistic. So mm-hmm. there's no, there's absolutely no doubt that the money sort of played a part, but you know, they, they, they did, they didn't splash that kind of crazy money like they did with Bradley and Javinko and Altador, but they did spend you know, unwisely before when they brought in guys like Torsten Frings and, and Danny Kubermans and, and Mista. And uh, I'm trying to think of the other DP, uh, Julian de Guzman. Julian de Guzman. Um, great player, you know, wrong time, wrong fit for what they needed. Um, it was really so, yes, you know, the, the money absolutely sort of, you know, paved the way for, you know, TFC to what they are today, which is, you know, a league powerhouse and not a laughing stock. But you know, m- money doesn't solve all, all problems. You have to have smart, you know, intelligent people running the show and, you know, knowing where to spend that money and spending it wisely. And, and that's what they did. And, you know, credit does have to be given for, to Tim Laiwiki for really getting MLSE to open up the coffers because, you know, I think him, that really was kind of sort of the, cha- the turning point in the franchise because before then TFC was always, ah, you know, they're that's, sort of soccer club on the side. Um, he was really the mm-hmm. one that elevated them within the sort of eyes of, you know, all those around him in MLSC. I think we all understand that, you know, the Maple Leafs are always going to be the top priority, that the Raptors are always going to be priority number two. We all kind of get that. And I'm not suggesting that Tim elevated them anything close to what the Leafs are, the Raptors are in terms of the importance level of MLSC. 
and that's never going to happen. But he did elevate them certainly to a level that was unseen before within the, the sort of halls of MLSE. And I think he really sort of made, you know, the people understood, understand that, you know, this is an important property and that we have to invest in it. And without him, um, you know, you wouldn't have gotten the investment in, in, in Defoe and, and Bradley and Altador and whatnot. So he played a big part of it. Uh, Tim Bezbachenko played a massive part in it. And here, and I got to tell you, he was someone when they hired him as GM, I was like, who is this guy? What? Like he, he did what for the league now? Um, you know, I just thought, oh my God, like, can we just like, can they just hire someone with, you know, an experienced GM who knows what he's doing? This sounds like another project, like our inventor, someone who would have to kind of grow into the role. Um, have no problems admitting that I was 100% wrong. A brilliant hire, you know, the absolute sort of architect in a large ways of turning this team around. Uh, you can talk about bringing guys like Michael Bradley and Josie Altador and whatnot, and that played a big part in the team's turnaround. But he was an astute judge of, of talent, of MLS talent, because it's not just about DPs. DPs are only three guys on a roster. You still have to have round that out with other guys. And the fact that he was able to to sort of put together this deep, balanced sort of roster during his time there by bringing in guys like Will Johnson, by bringing in Drew Moore, by bringing in Clint Irwin, by bringing in Stephen Betashore, by bringing in um, the Panamanian guy. I can't remember his name. Was it Cooper? Armando Cooper, yeah. Armando Cooper. Um, you know, to, to, you know, pulling off some pretty smart drafts moves. He was, you know, really, as I said, very much the architect of sort of turning this team around on the field. Um, you know, Greg Vanny, um, another architect. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about who's on the Mount Rushmore of TFC, like off the field, he's up there. Um, in the way he coached, in the way he managed the team, in the way he dealt with players, in the way he set up the team to win, in the way he sort of challenged players. I mean, guys like Jonathan Osario uh, really flourished under Greg Vanny because he kind of gave him the tactical freedom to and and sort of direction to do to become Jonathan Osario. Um, you know, again, don't think Greg gets enough credit because I think a lot of people will look at it and we're like, well, of course he led them to MLS cup because he had like the, the richest roster in the team. Um, that's a very, uh, you know, unnuanced sort of argument. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. It's, it's, it's difficult managing any team in an MLS and he did it sort of brilliantly and really sort of helped change the culture and just bringing stability. If, if nothing else, Greg Vanny was a stable <laughs> presence. And I think that helped so much. Um, Bill Manning, um, absolutely vital to sort of helping change the culture of the team around. Um, I think I, you know, I've written about this, but I don't think most people know. So Manning was hired October of 2015. And so it was either just before or just after, you know, the playoff loss to Montreal. I can't remember who was before or after. Um, but, and you guys remember the playoff loss. I mean, it was like after oh, yeah. nine years, it was after nine years, they finally get there. And, and it was like, really, that's it. That's what we waited nine years for. Yeah, um, 
In fact, I think that was my lead in the story I wrote for, for Sportsnet at the time. Like, that's it. That's what we waited. <laughs> um, but so, and, and I appreciate that Saba and Michael and Josie were all there, but it was still, you still had remnants of the old TFC. So this was still a team transitioning. Um, and it, so it was shortly after the Montreal loss. One of the first things that Bill did, he commissioned the building of a trophy cabinet at the TFC training ground. Yep. And I remember sort of hearing about it, like they were kind of doing work on it. And I remember asking like the PR guy at the time, great guy named Mike Massaro. I'm like, well, what's going on there? He's like, oh yeah, Bill wants them is putting in a trophy cabinet. And, you know, like it was, it was not even like two weeks after the Montreal loss. And I'm just like, this either smacks of like, unmitigated like arrogance and hubris or like just delusion like like trophy <laughs> cabinets really like who like who the hell are you kidding did you not watch what happened two weeks ago at Stad Saputo like this was you know it was mind-blowing to me how like I just did not understand it um but then I got it and it was because you know Bill wanting Bill wanted to sort of ingrain in the player's mind that you know, this is what we're playing for. And I should say the trophy cabinet, it's like kind of three glass cabinets built in the wall. And so there's three different sections and, you know, above each section, there's the stenciled in the wall, you know, Canadian championship, MLS cup, CONCACAF champions league. And so he wanted the players, the coaching staff, everyone to be constantly reminded that that's what they're sort of playing for. And that, you know, if you sort of, if you kind of start acting and feel like winners, then you're going to be winners on the pitch. And, you know, I'm not sure if any of you, if you have been to the training ground, but when you walk into the main foyer, that's the first thing you see. It's on like the main wall that kind of overlooks the foyer. So it's unmistakable. And it's in, it's in the player's lounge as well. Like the other side of the wall is the player's lounge. So when the players, you know, go to the cafeteria and then they go into the player's lounge to relax, they see that. So they, you cannot help but be reminded that, you know, those trophy cabinets are empty whenever you go to that building, but that's what he wanted to do. He wanted a constant reminder that, look, it's not some sort of, you know, fanciful ideal that we're playing for. We're actually playing for hardware here. This is what we're playing for. And I think that was instrumental in, again, changing the culture of the team. Um, and one last sort of person I have to mention, uh, even though I know he divides opinion of some people, um, you know, Michael Bradley is not, sort of the best player that TFC has signed. I think he's top five. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, but I argue he is the most important player the team has ever signed. Um, you know, Sebastian Javinko and Josie Altador do not come to TFC unless Michael Bradley had signed the previous year. Um, the culture change at TFC, I won't say it wouldn't have changed. It probably would have, but it would have taken a lot longer had Michael Bradley not been sort of brought aboard. Um, you know, I spoke before that. I'm not sure people really appreciate, um, you know, what he does on the field, much like Carl Robinson, because it's not the flashiest or the sexiest position. It's not, you know, uh, you know, a stats lover's dream in terms of goals and assists and, and whatnot. But, you know, he does kind of like the sort of unglamorous mop-up work on sort of the pitch that I think often goes unrecognized. And behind the scenes, you know, I can't tell you enough how, like, again, 
he was the central figure in terms of the player from a player's perspective in turning that culture around. Um, Michael Bradley, if nothing else, was a pretty intense guy. <laughs> like to see oh, we've him- heard we've heard yeah. trust us we have we've heard stories yeah i mean to see him smile is like or chuckle is a big deal this guy is like on all the time like he is just so i've never met an athlete whether it's soccer player basketball hockey whatever who is as focused as is tuned in 100 percent all the time as michael bradley I mean, it, it takes amazing discipline to do what he does just to say sort of focused on the game and like the team at all time. It's just staggering. Um, and so, so there's that. There's the fact that he holds people himself more than anyone to the utmost highest standard to the fact that he will not accept excuses for anything. Um, you know, I think a lot was made last year about TFC and how, you know, they had to play almost the entire season on the road. And, you know, towards the end, that's what kind of wore them out while they petered out in the playoffs in Nashville. And I can remember Michael being asked about that. He would absolutely not have any of that. You know, he says, look, I don't want to hear about, we had to be on the road. I don't want to hear about that. We were down in, you know, Connecticut. I don't want to hear about, we didn't see our families for a while. I didn't want to hear about you know, the hardships. I don't want to hear about that. We weren't able to play at BMO field. Like, I just don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear any excuses. That's not an excuse. So that sort of mentality, everything that Michael Bradley brought from a player's perspective was completely missing beforehand. So, you know, from a player, from a player point of view, um, he has had a, an incredible influence on changing that culture around. And again, not the best player TFC has signed. I do think he's top five, but in terms of importance of what he's meant for the team, um, with all due respect to Sebastian Javinko, you know, my Italian brethren, uh, it, is, it is Michael Bradley. I mean, the first sort of statue that goes up when MLSC starts thinking about erecting statues outside BMO Field for players, his is the first that goes up. He, his is the first face that will be etched on, you know, the TFC Mount Rushmore, uh, you know, absolutely instrumental to this team. I cannot sort of like, you know, I can't stress it enough. And look, not the easiest guy in the world to deal with <laughs> from a media perspective, believe me. Um, you know, we've all been sort of victim or on the receiving end, what I call like the Michael Bradley death stare. I was going to say uh, it's the death stare, right? Yeah, yeah he has where, a good one. Where, where he doesn't like a question and it's just like, he stares at you, right? <laughs> or like he will, you know, he, he does not suffer fools gladly from the media. So like, if he doesn't like the premise of your question, he'll absolutely challenge you on that. And I have to say, he's a little bit more forgiving with less experienced reporters. So I have noticed when it's like a, someone who's new to the beat or he knows it's like a young sort of reporter who might not know the sport all that well and is just there on assignment, he'll go out of his way to make like a chicken shit sandwich into a chicken salad sandwich for them but for guys like me and everyone else um there's no leeway so uh, again he's he he is very um yeah not always the easiest guy to deal with but you know you cannot say enough about his sort of personality and what he's meant for the team um you know and and you know i say that about he's difficult and everything and i do have to say um 
he does show signs of, or I would say being a human being, that's not the right word. Uh, he does show another side of himself very occasionally. Perfect case, same point. So in 2014, uh, you know, unfortunately I lost my mother to a very form, very rare form of brain cancer. And so I, I was, you know, I was understandably away from the team for, for a couple of weeks. I wasn't at, I don't think I missed any home games, but um, I wasn't at practice and I was at practice pretty, you know, two or three times a week, pretty much. And so I was away from, from, from there for a while. And then, you know, obviously, you know, the funeral comes and, you know, the morning period ends and I get back to normal and I'm at TFC the first time. So my first practice back, you know, practice is done and the players come off the field. And typically what happens is, as I said before, the coach is the first one to scrum. Then once he gets out of the way, then they'll bring players out. So, you know, Greg was still like on the field, like talking to, um, to Robin Fraser or something like that. So we weren't going to get him on the scrum any, anytime soon. And, but the players were going to come off. And usually when the players come off, they'll, they'll go back into the weight room or whatever. They'll, they don't hang around. Right. And they'll come out when they talk to us. So they're walking off the field. They're going out the door. I'm standing 10 feet away. Michael is kind of like headed for the door to go into the building. And then he sort of, sort of suddenly turns around uh, and he's about to reach for the door. And then he stops dead in his tracks. And sort of he turns around and he walks straight over to me. And I thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? Um, because he had pulled me aside, I think, like the year before about uh, something I had wrote that he didn't like. And he challenged me. On it. Although fair play to him. He didn't give me the Cummins treatment. He was like, he was actually very polite and respectful about it. Uh, and I just wanted to have like a frank discussion. So that was kind of cool. Uh, no F-bombs at all. But that's kind of what I thought. I thought, well, I, and I immediately I'm racing through my mind. Well, what did I write last column? What that Bradley would have an issue with? And he kind of came over to me and he said, um, you know, off, you know, want to, you know, um, offer you my condolences and everything. Um, you know, it was, it was, um, he said something to, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was sad to not have you here for the past couple of weeks, but we're glad to have you back. And then he kind of shook my hand, patted me on the back and he went away. Now at the time, you know, Michael Bradley knew who I was. He knew who my name, you know, he knew me enough to know that I was one of the regular beat reporters who covered the team and whatnot, but he didn't know me. I mean, he couldn't tell me what my mother's name was. He didn't know anything about me, but the fact that he kind of showed me that little bit of, uh, you know, kindness, uh, during what was a very difficult time for me when he didn't have to, um, you know, that meant a lot. Um, and you know, I've seen him do that to other people as well. I mean, this guy is, you know, a multimillionaire and, and one of, you know, he's Michael Bradley. He is who he is. So there's a certain level of, of status there. But, you know, the way he sort of conducts himself at, at you know, train, at the training ground where, you know, he'll, I'm not making this up. He will talk to sort of like the cleaning staff and really engage with them in conversation or talk to the security guards or talk to the cookie, the cafeteria staff and not just, hey, how are you? But like actually get into a conversation with them about their lives. I mean, he treats people, he doesn't put on airs. I mean, he treats people as if they're people, like he's not better than, like he, he's anyone, like as though he's not better than anyone. And so I'd like to see a little bit more of that side from Michael from time to time, frankly. But, <laughs> okay, uh, and, and that's fair. And that's, you know, we don't hear, we don't hear stories like this about him that often, yeah. right? Like we, we hear about his intensity and we see it in interviews right. and we see it on the pitch. and. Um, sort of 
I guess kind of a transitional question to carry us from the Vanny era into the new era and then into, I swear, the eventual end of this podcast um, is because, you know, again, we hear stories, right? And we also know what we see and we know what we saw the first couple of years that Bradley was here and where he was, where he played on the pitch, which was everywhere. And seemingly wherever he wanted there was often confusion about where they were going to use him in a formation finally figured that out which saw greater success for tfc the team came together more focused but one of the things and as much as and again it's taken me several years i admit it to respect bradley to a you know a pretty solid degree i i Again, those first couple of years really put me off in terms of his play. Um, I appreciate what he does as a player, and I certainly appreciate his work ethic um, and his commitment to many things. And, you know, I've learned more about him as the years have gone on, as you do. But one of the things that you can't deny, no matter how fit this man is, and clearly he is in great shape. He, again, work ethic, he works very hard to keep himself in shape and that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things that's frustrated us as fans and not, not just as of the team, but fans of football, fans of other players getting chances is that he never comes off the pitch. Right. If Michael wants to play, he plays. And, and, and people have commented on it. Coach, you know, like not in a, oh, that's Michael. He's just intense. More as a, you know, he should probably come off the pitch sometimes and other people should play. Right. And his influence with Greg Vanny um, seemed large that Michael had maybe more than his fair of, of a say in how things were, were done. Um, and that obviously contributed to the culture in, in from the sounds of, for the most part, very good ways. Um, but looking at the new coach, so there's now, there's a new structure involved, right? Bill Manning is still here, which is great. You know, we, we, we've had Bill on our show. We like Bill. Um, we like, we respect Bill's knowledge uh, for what he does within the sport and what he knows about the sport. And so you've got Ali Curtis and who had a certain way of doing things at uh, the Red Bulls. And now Chris Armas, again, sort of, you know, fellow who is asked for one thing, Michael to do a much more advanced role, which mm-hmm. requires him to exert more energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a schedule this year where they're going to be playing constantly in mm-hmm. some stretches where it's literally every three days, every four days, they've got a match. Um, and I do recall seeing Chris Armas saying something along the lines of he will sit him if he has to. And right. that is the first time I have seen a coach with TFC with regards to Michael Bradley actually come out and say, yeah, I'll sit the old man down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's not ancient or anything. Again, still a very, still a very strong player. And again, I've come to appreciate him much more in recent years, but this is something I think that do you think is necessary? Well, I think we think it's necessary. I think it's necessary as a, as a fan and as someone who watches the game. Um, but do you think that will, that will happen in a harmonious way or will this be, will this be a battle or does he respect Armis enough to be like, you know what? You're right. For the good of the team, I will do this. Right. Right. So a lot of 
things there to unpack. I guess I know. Sorry. No, no, it's good. I know I can I can get to it all. The first thing I want to say is like in terms of like the Vanny years. Um, did he sort of influence Vanny's selection? I think that's fair to say, but not to the point where he goes to Greg. Well, look, I'm starting today, and like if you if you don't like it, then bench me. It certainly wasn't to that degree where you know you know Michael is kind of filling out like the the starting eleven actual card for him. And just, you know, threatening to, well, if you're not going to play me, then, then bench me. But I don't think there's any question. Yes. I mean, there was sort of influence on Greg. And I think it's just, I think it's more born out of just that's who Michael Bradley is. I mean, I joke about it, but like, he'd have to be dead not to want to play. Like literally you look at his sort of record so far with TFC. I mean, how many times has he actually been subbed out of a game, not due to injury? Once, how many times has he been available but not started a game? Never. I think maybe. Never. I think maybe twice. Really? Really? Um, that many? Yeah. I would have. I, I would have topped that at once as well, but maybe twice. It's maybe. It's it's once for sure, and maybe twice. So we're talking about like you can count on one hand the many the the, the number of times where he hasn't started and or played ninety minutes. Um, that's not out of, but that's not out of ego on his part. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. It's more born out of this incredible, you know, will to want to compete and play. And like, you know, like again, he'd have to be like, you know, hanging on to like his arm or his like leg would have to be falling off for him not right, to. Right, but that's not good for the team all the time. No, and, that, and that sort of gets into my second point. So I think to a certain extent that works well. And it's sort of, I think it helps sort of turn the culture around. Sure. But at the same time, I think it it does sort of like sort of call into question about whether that's even sustainable, especially now with what you sort of mentioned about Armis sort of asking a different sort of to tweak his game a little bit and asking much more of him to be more of a two-way player, to cover more ground and cover ground differently, to kind of get more involved in the attack, win sort of more duels and tackles and battles. I mean, Michael Bradley played a ver- pretty physical style to begin with. I mean, it was you know, what he did was pretty taxing and it asked a lot out of him. Now it's, it, he's being masked, asked even more. Right. And it's funny. You, you sort of, you sort of quoted Chris Ramos about, yeah, I'll sit the guy down because that was my question to him in the, in the, in sort of the zoom call was like, I basically raised all the points you said. I look, look, God bless Michael, but you know, he's 33 this year. He's going to be 34 in July, I think what you're asking to do is, is very taxing. Can you reasonably expect him to keep this pace, you know, the entire time? And Chris's answer was essentially, well, look, there's certain things that Michael can do during a game where he doesn't have to go full out. Right. He can kind of preserve himself. So he'll sort of, you know, sort of save himself throughout the season. And he did say, yeah, look, if I have to, if the time comes where, you know, I have to sit him, then, you know, I, you know, I'm going to tell him that he's sitting. Um, I'm very interested to see how this plays out. Uh, For me, that's one of the more interesting questions going into the season, because, you know, how does that conversation go? How does Chris Armas, a guy who, by the way, Michael Bradley kind of was, uh, you know, Chris Armas was his mentor when right when Chris he was a was, kid. Yeah, as a kid when Chris was playing for you know the Chicago uh, a Fire and and Michael's father was the coach and Michael was you know ten or eleven years old and you know shagging balls and shining boots at practice and you know 
there's a kind of a big brother, little brother sort of dynamic to the relationship there. Um, and there's a lot of mutual respect. I'm going to be very interested to see, you know, should the time come where it's, you know, that, you know, Michael Bradley has to sort of sit down and give, you know, someone like Liam Fraser or Ralph Prizo or one of the younger kids, uh, you know, a run of games. Or the Please fact give that, Liam oh, Fraser a run of games. Please, yeah, for the well, love of all that is good in the yeah. footballing world. Um, but I'm really going to be interested to see, you know, one, if he'll actually kind of follow through on this and two, what the conversation is like and, and three, what Michael's reaction will be. Um, I tend to think like you suggested that Michael will accept it with good grace, knowing that it is coming from Chris Armour, a guy who he does have a sort of a long relationship from, um, but underneath it, I mean, you got to think just the way that Michael is built, uh, you know, he's going to be cursing inside because again, he's a guy who, you know, he's going to have to be dead to not want to play. That's just the way he is. So for me, that's one of the more interesting storylines to watch how it develops over the, over the course of the season. We're almost done. We're literally in the home stretch. Um, we could we could talk literally all night, but people need to eat dinner and um, do other things. But we do still have there's still some questions left. And this is the, the rapid fire round. Also consider um, the people who are like they're going to go for a two hour walk based on our podcast. They're going further. They're going so I mean, well. We're, we're helping show. them get their. They're getting they're going their steps further. In. We're and helping everybody get their steps. They have to walk around the block exactly a lot exactly. Um, so as part of the rapid fire, we are going to include um, predictions for uh, the two upcoming TFC matches. Uh, you can give me a score. You can give me win, lose, or draw. I don't care. Uh, so first rapid fire question then, TFC versus Vancouver, go. And this is for uh, everybody. Everybody gets to play. I'll say 1-1. One, one. Okay. Duncan? 2-1 Toronto. Look at you all positive. Marcus? I know. One all. I'm going to side with Duncan, which almost never happens. So two one Toronto. Look at that. Hey, Darlington. Now the most, the more important of the two, obviously TFC versus Cruz Azul next Tuesday. Their old foe from ten years ago. Mm. That rhyme. Sorry. Um, predictions. Uh, one nothing Cruz Azul. Are they away or home for this one? I can't remember. They're they're home for this leg. Oh, oh, John predicting TFC down early. Duncan? 1-1. One, one. Okay, Marcus? 2-0 to La Paquina. Wow. wow. You, you, you two with the, the sourness. 
Um, I, I've got I got some reasons. Well, uh, yeah, no, because Cruz Azul are the best team right now. Cruz that they are. Killing, they've only let in eight goals. They're ridiculously talented. Yeah, yeah. okay, fine. Um, I, could lie, I could lie to you and say Toronto. I think Toronto's going to win. That'll. <laughs> You don't no. have to kiss her we, ass. We never want it's no. Fine. We never want lies for score predictions. Um, I'm also saying one one. This is really weird, Duncan. I am not. We must disagree for the next three shows. This is imperative. Um, yes. Okay. Here we go, John. Are you ready? Sure. Because these are all for you. Best pasta dish, and why is it fettuccine Alfredo? <laughs> it's not. Please don't. Please don't hang up. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not uh, Alfredo. Um, best positive, <laughs> God. I mean, God, that's so tough. I've got so many. Um, it's weird because I kind of go, this is not going to be a rapid fire answer. But <laughs> it's okay, it's fairly KJ slow was fire. the same, so um, it's all right. It's, um, I, I kind of go through phases where one are my favorite and the kind of, I kind of have like a ranking power ranking, essentially. Um, Ooh, so right now I'm doing one with... Um, Jerusalem artichokes and uh, olive oil and uh, black olives and uh, fresh thyme. Fantastic. Um, so there's that. Um, I like a good aglio olio, which is basically just oil and garlic. I feel and, like that's the one I've seen you reference the most. Yeah. And you kind of type in, you can put in some like, you know, either chili flakes or red chili. Um, I like a good uh, basil pesto. Always a favorite. I like a good uh, spicy anchovy. Uh, which is what I made on Sunday. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't know. Right now it's kind of aglio olio is, or no, the, the Jerusalem artichoke one I'm really high on because it's, they're kind of in season right now. So, but uh, yeah, it kind of changes from week to week, day to day. Hour right. to hour. <laughs> When's the cookbook coming out? <laughs> yeah. That, that'll be the next, that'll be the next uh, pay subscription website recipes. So. <laughs> Um, uh, favorite football club, not Juventus. Oh, wow. Um, I, you know, I, I've always had a, a, a soft spot, a soft spot for, um, Bordeaux because they were the ones who sold, uh, Zinedine Zidane to Juventus for a song back in 1996. So <laughs> uh, thank you, Bordeaux. <laughs> thank you so much. That's a very good reason. So that was good. But, um, you know, ever since, I think I mentioned it before, ever since going to, to London uh, many years ago and uh, seeing like a whole bunch of like teams, you know, I saw Chelsea play, I saw Arsenal play at Highbury. So I went up to Crystal Palace. I think I even saw Charlton play. Um, but uh, really a soft spot for Fulham just because, uh, you know, Craven Cottage. God, what a fantastic venue. It's a beautiful ground. Fantastic old school kind of venue. Right on the river. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. 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 It's and magic. It's funny. I mean, it, it's like right on the river and it's like literally two subway stops from, from, from Stamford bridge. Yep. So, you know, you, you can get off at the, the subway stop and go to Stamford bridge or carry on two more stops and go to Craven cottage. Um, you know, fantastic. I mean, just a great sort of atmosphere. I can't remember it, but there was a, there was an awesome fish and chips place uh, around the corner that I went to. Absolutely <laughs> love that. Um, but yeah, Kind of disappointed. It looks like Fulham is going to go down this year, but uh, I'll always be rooting for the Cottagers. KFC player that you feel will make a great coach that isn't already one. That isn't oh, Michael God. Bradley. 
That is a Megaboogaloo. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, it doesn't matter who it is. Um, man, that is a tough one. Um, I could kind of see it in, um, you know, Omar Gonzalez at the moment. I think as someone who's kind of been around for a long time, who sort of understands the game, I, I think just defenders in general are um, just, I kind of think of them as the quarterbacks of the game, especially center backs, um, just because they have to sort of read the game a little bit more, I think, than the average player. Um, you know, look at someone who, you know, I'm a Juventus fan, Paolo Maldini, probably one of my favorite players of all time. Um, someone who was just so sort of intelligent and, and could really sort of read the game before it played out. It was always, you know, two or three steps ahead. Um, and I think Omar, you know, he's not on Paolo Modini's uh, level, don't get me wrong, but I think he's certainly someone who understands and reads the game beyond kind of like, you know, this is my role and this is what I do. I think he sees the whole field. And so, I mean, I don't even know if he actually has any sort of ambition to, to get into coaching, but uh, he strikes me as someone who has, who has sort of the tactical acumen and the temperament to do it as well. Uh, what is, or who is, what's the worst interview you've ever, you've ever had around TFC? Oh, when, uh, God, who was bad? Um, well, <laughs> not to pick on Andy Welsh, but, um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> he was, um, Mark's like, yes. And this is probably my fault is more than anything. I mean, I have a really hard time with his accent. And so I it was oftentimes it was like, what did he say? I had to sort of like get him to repeat stuff or ask someone else because I just had a really hard time sort of understanding. And it's, I probably shouldn't say this, but because I like Stephen Caldwell, don't get me wrong. I think he's very good at what he does. Quality. But on the broadcast, I have like a lot of times what he says is just like, because I didn't grow up with like a lot of sort of Scottish and English accents. So like the Scottish accent for me, especially is very difficult to decipher sometimes. And it's just like, I, I can't like, what did he say? What? So, um, Welsh, um, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think who was really bad. Um, Torsten Frings, um, just because huh. there was a genuine shyness there. It wasn't because, he could actually speak good English for, for someone who was, it wasn't his first language, but he generally thought like he, whenever he wanted to do interviews, cameras couldn't be on. He would only do interviews with print reporters because he didn't want to have cameras record him because he was that conscious about, you know, his ability to speak English. And I think, but even when he spoke with us, he was very kind of timid and everything. And he's, he struck me as a very thoughtful guy the way he conducted himself. So it would have been great you know, if I had been able to speak German with him, I'm sure he would have been, you know, fan fantastic interview subject. But, um, you know, so he was, I mean, and through no fault of his own, don't get me wrong. But, you know, obviously he was, he was someone who, yeah, like I said, I, I don't think he ever really kind of felt comfortable in that space to begin with. So um, those kind of two kind of stand out. I mean, there were, there were jerks along the way, you know, like, I mean, Ryan Nelson, as I said, he could be a bit of a jerk. Precky could be a bit of a real fucking jerk. Um, no, Johnson could be like a real, you know, prick. Um, 
I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna highlight that uh, that quote of you saying Preki was a real fucking jerk. But that's only for Duncan. It's only for Duncan. Don't worry Thank about you, it. Mark. No problem. God, what a like an insufferable like joyless person. <laughs> I loved him as a player. I, I couldn't oh hear from him as a player. Oh, like, oh, and I should say, like full credit to him as a player. Absolutely, like absolutely. Oh my god, MLSer. Even as a coach before he came to Toronto, obviously he had success. But, and has but, had success since. Yeah, but again, like you know, like I never like. It's okay. My dad hated him too. My dad used to text me constantly. Did you see him on the sideline this game? Oh my God. Yeah. My dad hates him. He's just, you know, he, he was like a joyless soul. Like I I said it before and I was only half kidding. Like I still don't know if he actually genuinely enjoys football. Like, you know, so those guys from an interview perspective, I mean, all uh, right. Personality, yeah. Personality-wise, I can definitely see that about Preki. But he, that was the first time TFC were ever defensively competent. We had like a half season there where, oh, yeah. okay, they have to look like they know what they're doing. That was the best I mean, stepping fry I ever looked for Toronto. I mean, the Dan standard. Gargan. The standard. The standard was pretty low to begin with, though. I mean, yes. So I Agreed. mean, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I suppose <laughs> he deserves some credit for that. But I mean, again. Um, he, he yeah. was not believe me Duncan he was not nice to deal with not like I, not I, a, I have no problem believing that uh, absolutely next question uh, say some theoretical World Cup in the future Canada versus Italy who are you cheering for <laughs> hard hitting journalism mm-hmm. it's a World Cup final no no sure. it's probably going to be a group stage it's probably group stage yeah okay but it's a World Cup game yeah. Yes. This matters. You know, I mean, uh, I've kind of been back and forth on this for so long. I'll say this, and this is me sort of like cheating. Uh, if, it's friendly, <laughs> if it's a friendly where nothing's on the line, no. then Canada. Then Canada. <gasps> uh, if it's a competitive game, like a World Cup game that matters, then, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it's probably I'm cheering for Italy. John Montanaro hates Canada. You heard it here first. But you have to understand, I mean, Juventus was the first team I sort of sort of supported, and and Italy was the second. Like literally. I mean, that was all I knew. I mean, when I found out like that there was a team such as the Toronto Blizzard, that there were Canadian teams, believe me, that absolutely blew my mind. Um, so it was just a matter of, you know, it's 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 kind of who I grew up with, like the Italian national teams in Juventus. They were one A and one B. So, yeah, if it's a World Cup game, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but it's probably the Azuri. Uh, okay. Uh, keeping going with the tough questions, what's your favorite English food? My favorite English food? Mm. Um, I know you're, you're very much a fan of English foods. Yeah, 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 Twitter. yeah, it's, yeah it's spectacular. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, certainly not Yorkshire pudding or... Uh, no. Or um, how dare you? Seriously, James Nothing from Yorkshire. Do you know what you just said? You started a war. He calls it pudding where he's from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, James Sharman told me this is an actual thing, and I want you guys to confirm. Jelly okay. eels. Yeah. Yeah. Jelly eel pie. Oh, yeah. With, that's a shame. Tony's not here. I was say Tony is going to mm. be so upset he's missed this. He. Yeah. Yeah. That's. So. So what is it? That's actual eels in like congealed jelly. Yeah. In pie. Yeah, essentially. You, you 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 bake it in a pie. You pour in the 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 the, the jelly. Oh my god, so, man! 
uh, yeah. John's face so, is exactly how I feel right now. Is it parsley liquor? Is it is it parsley sauce? Yeah, right? Yeah. So I do not know how to so I would want no part of that. I would want I want no part of Yorkshire pudding. I want no part of shepherd's pie. I want no part of I mean the answer wasn't which one you don't like. <laughs> it's which one do you like? I mean, you're you're um, angering you're angering our very small listenership here. Come on. You know, I guess I guess the English make a decent curry. I mean, fish and chips is certainly good, mm -hmm. but I mean, I was like, expecting you to say fish and chips. Yeah, but I mean, like, like I got to be honest with you. I mean, God bless the English. Like, I think they're fantastic people. Uh, there's a lot to respect there because they remind me. <laughs> you can see that coming a mile away. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, yeah, um, yeah, that's that train's pulling in. I can see it. <laughs> um, however. However, um, oh you know, uh, with all due respect, um, you know, if we're talking about food cultures, uh, I don't think you can sort of hold the, them up as kind of like the, the shining, you know, house on the on the hill. Uh, certainly not when you compare it to, you know, the wonderful food culture that I kind of grew up with. Which you know, <laughs> You're with completely unbiased. <laughs> yeah, with all due respect. I mean, I've never heard anyone in the history of mankind say, nah, I hate Italian food. Well, you know, you know. Who, who, in, who in the world has ever at once uttered those words? It's never escaped from anyone's lips. All I right, mean, listeners, this is a challenge issued from John Molinaro. Um, if you hate Italian food, we need to hear from you. Sorry, continue on, folks. <laughs> uh, which MLS press box has the best and the worst food? Best and worst food? Yes. Uh, worst is uh, Red Bull Arena. It's essentially... Uh, you know, I, I've been there a couple of times, essentially like hot dogs and nachos and, but like not very good hot dogs and nachos <laughs> and, and kind of like uh -huh. up hamburgers. And, and so, you know, I wasn't particularly impressed. I mean, believe me, when I had to go to cover a game in New York, I was always eating before the game or after the game. Uh, best. Um, I've never been to Portland, but from what I hear, spectacular spread that they put out. Because they kind of do like a seasonal thing with whatever is kind of in season in the local um, sort of market and really kind of build the cuisine around that. But of the two that I have been to, um, Full Marks to Vancouver, who did, uh, you know, an incredible uh, lentil curry the few times that I've been there. And they do okay. uh, obviously do a nice salmon dish as well and just really sort of solid. And uh, as I recall, uh, Seattle was good. Um, again, some seafood in there and they naturally have like their own Starbucks in the press box. Um, but hands down, like the winner was New York city FC. Um, I can remember covering the five nil playoff game there in 2016, 17, whatever it was. And it was like, uh, it was like going to the sizzler. It was, you know, it was just like this huge kind of you know, buffet style with like spare ribs and chicken wings and, um, you know, curries and, and just, you know, whatever you wanted, they essentially had, it was spectacular. Uh, so fantastic. I can't believe I didn't mention Atlanta, Atlanta, very much similar to New York. Um, spectacular spread. They had like a soft serve uh, ice cream machine in there. John just camped out next to the soft serve ice oh, cream yeah. machine. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I will enough. say this. Now, ladies, this is the journalist. way to John's heart. Excellent soft serve. I, I will say this: uh, the best pasta dish that I've had was at Stad Saputo. They do, mm -hmm. they do like a, a pasta al forno, which uh, in Italian means kind of um, 
it's essentially, it's not, it's like a, a pasta that you actually kind of bake in the oven. Fantastic. Great stuff. Okay. Good to know. Last question with regards to press box. Have you ever cheered in the press box? If so, why? Have I ever cheered? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. I've certainly moaned. I've certainly, um, <laughs> I've certainly kind of like. We just covered like what? 15 years of TFC? Of course you moaned. <laughs> well, no, when it. TFC won the cup, you didn't cheer? John. When, 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 no, when, 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 uh, uh, when Canada beat when, the U.S. Benoit Cheroux scored in extra time against Montreal. How could you not? I can honestly kind of raise my hand and say, like, I've, I've never sort of cheered. Like when, like, there was a lot of moaning and it wasn't because, oh my God, like, I can't believe, like, there, it was nothing like that. It was, it was more times out of it was 10, it was because someone had scored a late goal. And so I had oh. to scramble to, like, rewrite my story. Yes. That's what it was. Like, that's nine times <laughs> out of 10, that's okay. what it was. That's fine. Or if, um, you know, when, when Seba scored that incredible goal against New York, you remember the one that kind of clinched the face first playoff win? Oh, okay, yeah. Like when you saw that, I mean, I wouldn't say I cheered, but I was just like, oh my God. Like I kind of let one of those out because that was, that was yeah. or when uh, Ibrahimovic scored that fantastic scissor kick goal. Um, you know, it was like, oh my, like you, you, I wouldn't say you, I didn't let out a cheer, but it was just an exalt of like, you know, what did I just see? It was just like, holy fuck, what the hell was that? Like that mm -hmm. was great. So, but have I like kind of cheered like a result? No, have, I mean, even when they won the cup, um, you know, was I happy that they won? Sure. Um, not so much for them though. It was more for kind of the people behind the scenes um, who I'd known had been employed with the team for a long time and had to kind of like endure those dark days. And, and now they were kind of getting, you know, riding the highs of what was going on. So yeah. Again, perfect example was the PR guy named Mark Massaro, Mike Massaro, who no longer with the team, but fantastic individual, uh, you know, was there um, not from the start, but for most of like the dog days. And, you know, so couldn't have been more happy for, for a guy like him or, you know, some of the support staff, um, you know, was fantastic. Uh, but no, I can honestly say never actually kind of like, yeah, TFC one, isn't this great? It's, there's never been a moment like that. That's fair. Okay. If you had to choose, or sorry, you have to choose A or B, okay? You choose either, you only get to eat Chef Boyardee as your Italian food for life. I don't like where this is going. Or support Inter Milan for one season. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do, John? What do you do, John? Sorry, is, is the Chef Boyardee, is that, that's for life, you said? For life. Mm -hmm. One and year, one year enter, one, one lifetime of canned. Yeah, well then, forgive me, my fellow Juventini, that, but I would support Inter Milan for a year. I, I think this is more about your, your, your threshold for taste than it does about your love of footy, so I understand. Yeah, yeah completely. If you said the other thing, I would have I would have accused you of being an imposter. Yeah, yeah. that was more if, of a test. Now, if you had said, now, if you had said sort of eating Chef Boyardee for a year versus sort of rooting for Inter Milan for a year, then that would have been an interesting debate, and I'm not sure what I would do, but... A life is a long oh, lifetime of like pain. file that away or, for the next time John is on the show. Got you. We'll, 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 we'll work on finding where the border we'll, lies. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Um, mm. All right. Final question. 
Wow. Yeah, it's our final question. Final question. Final question. Uh, do TFC make it to MLS Cup this year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I'm gonna, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but um, I, I can't say. I mean, it's, it's far too early in the season. I mean, we don't know how, you know, this sort of tactical vision of how Chris wants to play is going to play out in the long run. I mean, the early signs are positive, although you wouldn't have known it from the Montreal game. Um, but, uh, you know, will this sort of succeed? Will he sort of stick with it? Or will he go have to go to sort of like a tactical B plan? You know, I don't okay. know. Okay, all right, all right. John, I'm going to give you a B version of this. Okay. Do they, do, they make it to the, do they make it out of the first round of playoffs? Do they make it to the playoffs? Uh, yeah, like I'm comfortable in saying that. I think they have enough quality right now without having to add like a third DP or sort of add some other pieces that they should make the playoffs. If they don't, then, you know, that's, you know, as a, you know, I would think fans would think that would be inexcusable and rightly so, um, you know, do they make it out of the first round again? I mean, I, I, I just think it's too far soon in the game for me to kind of commit. So, Oh, John, come on. I like to sort of see, you know, for me, it's it's foolhardy to kind of predict something like a game into the season. Like, there's just so many variables about how a season is going to play out that, is, you know, you can't do it for me. Totally you can't fair. reasonably do it. No, we're not reasonable here. You haven't uh, figured that out yet. <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, all right. Well, that is our show. That is our really, really long show. Second only to uh, our Bill Manning show, if I am looking at the clock correctly. So, um <laughs> How much more do we? How much more to break the record? No, no, no. We're not finding out. <laughs> no, we're not doing this tonight. Um, I anyway, appreciate that, that, John. I do appreciate. Yeah, exactly. It. We we do like. Well done. Like this is this is great. Um, that is our show for this week. And honestly, John, thank you so very much for joining us in our uh, little insane corner of the TFC world and the Canadian soccer world. Uh, we really. We thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and the stories. Um, we hope you had a good time and uh, yeah. wasn't too terrible. We're not as crazy as people say. Do people well, say you're crazy or well, we're oh, crazy oh, yeah, towards each other? But when, that's, when, yeah, when we that's guests, true. like we put, yeah, we're, we're nice we're to guests. Pants, like we are just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Us when we have guests, so that's true. It's true. Oh, pants are key. Pants are key. It's true. <laughs> true all right well then um do please everybody join us next week when we look back at uh two tfc matches and depending on which side of this panel you believe you know they're either gonna be miserable or celebrating uh we'll talk some cam pl we'll probably revisit the super league just a wee bit and more um i have been joined by out there on the twitters at duncan d fletcher mr duncan fletcher all this talk of shepherd's pie and Yorkshire pudding, I'm hungry. Um, uh, anyway, thank you, John. Uh, no problem. Fascinating. Oh, no problem. Uh, out there on the Twitterverse, at Malarkey. Oh, my God. See, I just assumed he's here. It's wow. just like, it's, it's Pavlovian. Wow. It's Pavlovian. It just happens. I'm so yeah, sorry. Does. He's not here. Uh, on the Twitterverse, at KitNerdMark with a K, not a Q, Mr. Mark Hinckley. Uh, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for your continuous support. We absolutely appreciate that. We got shirts. It's in a Zazzle store. It's on our website. You can go check it out. Uh, John, you've been a delight. You're, I love the candor and I love hearing a bit more of that shining a light on that dark part of history that we all know and love is Toronto FC. So thank you so very much for coming on, man. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. Um, out there 
in the Twitterverse at John Molinaro and also to be found at tfcrepublic.ca, Mr. John Molinaro. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having me on. No, oh, thanks for coming on. And of course, you can find me on the internet. Yes, the entire internet at KZ Knowles. I have been your host, Kristen Knowles. And until next week, Canada, get used to it.